It's the age of electronic dinosaurs and cybernetic Indians. It's the age where it's more fun than ever to be just a schnook. Well, hi there, everybody. This is episode 25, chapter 25 of Autobiography of a Schnook, and uh, I am your resident schnook, Sean, coming to you from the schnook nook in Chicago, and I hope all of you are doing well. You're staying healthy, both physically and mentally. Personally, I, I'm doing okay. It's kind of weird because, well, I'm recording this particular piece of the podcast on September 22nd, the first day of fall, and uh, my wife and I turned off the air conditioning a few days ago. It's been it's been really hot lately, and um, just last night, Lisa turned the air conditioner back on, and when I stepped outside this morning, I learned why. It was really, really weirdly uncomfortable out. So, I, I don't know. I, I guess this happens every year where you get weird weather right during the summer-fall transition. Lisa and I also just had our 21st wedding anniversary a few days ago. And, uh, yeah, 21 years. Good grief. Good. Oh, 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 speaking of good grief, uh, I got a little bit of feedback from uh, the previous episode since uh, there was a Peanuts focus on the first segment. Uh, one from a long-time listener, well, long-time given that this podcast has only been around for not even two years yet. Long-time listener Chris says, uh, I've reached the end of the Peanuts segment of the latest Schnook chapter, and I obviously enjoyed it massively. Well, I don't know if it's so much obvious. I mean, it's it's not obvious that somebody would necessarily enjoy it, but thank you for saying that, Chris. It's very kind of you. He goes on to say, I had a few of the book and record sets as well, including Charlie Brown's All-Stars, and he quotes, There Goes Our Shutout, plus the LP of He's Your Dog, Charlie Brown, and tons of those Fawcett books that Lisa mentioned. As a kid, I always wondered what the text on each front cover meant. Messages like, From Good Grief, More Peanuts, Volume 2. Only when I encountered one of the longer and dimensionally larger collections of dailies did I realize that each of my Fawcett books was actually the front or back half of a longer concurrent release. Wow, yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty much what that was, Chris. And man, that always confused me. It was just so so strange to me. Uh, Lisa and I would always buy up the Fawcett books if we saw them at a flea market or something. I and mean, we each had our own Fawcett books growing up as little kids. But as adults, we would collect them later on. But we didn't go after those original ones, you know, the ones where they selected the cartoons out of them. Uh, anyway, getting back to Chris, he says, uh, why I didn't hang on to all the Peanuts paperbacks from my youth is beyond me. I even had the script of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, in paperback form. I never stopped enjoying the strip, so I can't remember what happened to my initial editions. Like you two, however, I've bought the majority of the Fantagraphics hardcovers. I started getting them as soon as I discovered that they existed, and I remember waiting impatiently for the early 70s collections to finally be released, as I have a special fondness of many for the Helen Sweet Story Joe Cool period. The Fawcett book in question is You've Got to Be You, Snoopy, from 1971. Yeah, I like the uh, Helen Sweet Story books, the Six Bunny Oneies series. Uh, Chris goes on to say, um, And we definitely agree, Snoopy Come Home was and remains far too sad to watch. There's just something almost hauntingly downerish about it, even given the jubilee of Me and You, a Two-Man Crew, and Woodstock's whistling rendition. 
just the combination of the minor key theme song and Snoopy actually leaving, not to mention pretty much every other character being histrionically sad about it, was enough to give me nightmares as a young child. As an adult, when I recall this special, I mainly arrive at the conclusion, Lila, you selfish little bitch. <laughs> yeah, Chris, I'm going to interrupt for a second and say, man, I don't know how I feel about Lila myself. I mean, it's got to be traumatic for a little kid to love a dog that much and then have to be torn away from that dog. Uh, our beagle, Lola, we adopted her 14 months ago, yeah, July of 2019. And the reason she was at the rescue was that her previous family had surrendered her because the terms of their lease changed. They weren't allowed to have a dog anymore. And part of me was thinking, good God, why would you do that? If that if my lease changed and I couldn't have a dog, I'd move. But I don't know. I just don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm just being too closed-minded about that. I mean, probably easier said than done in some cases, but I don't know. Anyway, getting back to the rest of your email here, I imagine that you and Lisa have seen this relatively brief documentary featurette from 1963, but in case you haven't, it's absolutely worth watching. One of my favorite bits of film in existence is seen at 417 of a YouTube uh, link that Chris sent me here, when Sparky cracks up at some of his own panels while drawing a strip featuring Snoopy. And uh, by the way, that documentary he's referring to is called A Boy Named Charlie Brown. I don't believe it actually ever aired, but it is out on DVD, and Lisa and I did see it the first time we went to the Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa, California. They have an auditorium that pretty much has ongoing films, and I looked at the schedule and saw that they were showing the A Boy Named Charlie Brown documentary, so I was like, oh, I want to see that. And uh, quite honestly, it didn't really do much for us. It was like, eh, okay, I can see why it didn't air. It's not really that exciting. But Chris comments, there's just something right along the space-time continuum when Charles M. Schultz genuinely laughs at one of his drawings. Thank you for creating another great chapter, of which I'm actually still in the middle. And if you please, thank Lisa from this listener, at least, for her warm and highly insightful contribution to the Peanuts segment. By the way, I already did. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much, Chris. Uh, always good to hear from you. Always good to hear from anybody. You can email me at autobio at schnookpodcast.com. I also heard from my friend Jim, who also hosts Pie Factory Podcast with me. Uh, Piefactorypodcast.com. It's a arcade video game podcast that comes out every month. Now, one thing that he brought up was that he used to think that Charles Schultz's name was pronounced Schultz because it's spelled S-C-H-U-L-Z. There's no T in there. But there are a couple of things that I can contribute that would explain why everybody says Schultz. For one thing, I'm guessing that it's a German name. Schultz is a German name. And I don't speak German, but I did try to teach myself once uh, from a book that had a pronunciation guide. One thing it said was that Z is pronounced T-S, which explains A-L-Z-H-E-I-M-E-R, pronounced Alzheimer. So it's basically as if it were spelled A-L-T-S-H-E-I-M-E-R. So hence, S-C-H-U-L-Z is Schultz and not Schultz. Uh, even if it weren't that, I think another possible explanation or maybe not so much explanation, but support for the Schultz pronunciation. If you look at the Peanuts by Schultz cartoons, the ones that Bill talks about in, uh, it's a podcast, Charlie Brown, which I mentioned in the previous episode. If you watch those cartoons, 
you'll notice that there's a voiceover where kids say Peanuts by Schultz. So, um, that at least confirms that it's probably supposed to be pronounced Schultz. Uh, Jim also says, my favorite Peanuts series was when Charlie Brown was seeing baseballs everywhere, and he eventually developed a rash on his head that looked like baseball stitches. It was determined that Charlie needed to go to camp with a bag on his head the whole time. He was very popular as long as he had the bag on his head. Eventually, he watched a sunrise, fearful he'd see another baseball. Should I ruin it by telling what he saw? Uh, By the way, folks, if you don't want to be spoiled, turn the volume down for about 10 seconds. Jim says, I will. He didn't see a baseball. What he saw was Mad Magazine's Alfred E. Newman. And he goes on to say, I don't recall the book it was in. The Joliet newspaper didn't carry peanuts, but I recall it was light blue in color. I read the hell out of that book. Charles Schultz is the only celebrity I ever cried over when they died. And, uh, I, yeah, I, uh, I think Lisa and I mentioned that in the episode, how, yeah, uh, yeah, I remember shedding a few tears over that. And Lisa said that's the only time she ever really saw me cry. Um, that was, I mean, yeah, I knew he was sick, but yeah, I didn't, I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain. I mean, it's just someone who was really a part of your life for as long as you could remember. I mean, I didn't cry when my own f- family members died. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what that's all about, but yeah. But anyway, thank you for the feedback on that, Jim. Oh, by the way, another thing I have to say about the Peanuts segment in the previous episode, Lisa mentioned that when she was, I think, in third grade, she got this book that was essentially storyboards for an unproduced Peanuts special about recycling. Well, again, after listening to It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown, and one of the episodes I listened to recently, I was so backed up in podcast episodes, so I was mainlining a bunch of podcasts that I had lost track of. And I was listening to a recent episode that Bill did with Nat Gertler, who uh, is a, well, he wouldn't say peanuts historian. Nat would say peanuts nerd. (laughs) And um, that gave me an idea. I said, maybe Nat knows about this thing. So I emailed him and he responded almost seconds later saying that it's not an unproduced peanuts special but a actually produced short educational film called Charlie Brown Clears the Air. And it's on YouTube, by the way. It's a little bit primitive, even for Peanuts cartoons, but I'll put a link to that in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. And I will also link to uh, Nat Gertler's blog, the AUG blog, spelled A-A-U-G-H. He wrote an article about it in uh, 2008. And um, I showed it to Lisa, and she said, yeah, I think that's actually it. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. One other thing I have to mention about the previous episode. Now, this was in the music segment uh, when I was talking about the first CD that I ever bought, the early tapes of The Beatles, which was basically their 1961 and 1962 recordings that they did in Hamburg, Germany with Tony Sheridan. Just a couple of comments. Uh, First of all, when I was researching that episode... And I was uh, looking at some YouTube videos. I got into an argument with somebody on YouTube who insisted that when the Beatles auditioned for DECA on January 1st, 1962, that famous audition in which the 15 songs recorded circulate on bootlegs. And actually, some of them are actually on Beatles Anthology 1. But this person I was arguing with on YouTube insists that every vocal that we think is Paul McCartney on that DECA audition tape 
is actually Tony Sheridan. Uh, no, no. Uh, in fact, here, listen for yourself. Here is Paul McCartney from the DECA audition. So hold me tight, let tonight be the night. Now here's Tony Sheridan. I just want your loving arms about me. Yeah, I gotta find a way to make you take me back. Now here's Paul from another song in the DECA audition. The sun went out just like a dying ember. Now here's Tony Sheridan from another song. My phone lies over the ocean. There's no way in creation that that is Tony Sheridan on the DECA tape. No way. But this person I was arguing with insists that Paul McCartney was celebrating New Year's Eve too much and was basically three sheets to the wind and could not sing. So they called Tony Sheridan and said, come on down. We're auditioning for Decca. We need you to sing Paul's parts. Um, just a few things wrong with that. For one thing, the Beatles had been performing in nightclubs in Hamburg, one of the filthiest parts of Germany. You don't think that he could sing drunk? He and the other Beatles had been doing it for about a year at that point. Being drunk wouldn't have affected him at all. Another thing, Tony Sheridan, even though he was British, he lived outside of Hamburg. There's no way that on New Year's Day, he could have gotten a phone call from the Beatles saying, Tony, we need you for an audition. Come down to Decca Records in London. And he would have been able to make it in time all the way from Hamburg. No freaking way. And also... No, 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 no. There's no way you can tell me that that is Tony Sheridan. And even then, if Paul couldn't sing his part, certainly George could have. George could have taken over very easily. Maybe even John, even though John's voice didn't have quite the same range. He was a little bit lower. Another thing, some time ago, one of my Twitter followers, uh, hi, Deanna, I had posted a picture of the early tapes, a picture of that CD, the day that I listened to it, 30 years after I bought it. And I commented how it played through perfectly, which just goes to show if you take proper care of your CDs, they will last a long time. And she commented, I remember hearing you talk about that CD in one of your early episodes. And I was like, what? Did I? Did I? I listened and I, I was actually talking about something altogether different. And this is why being a Beatles fan can cause a lot of confusion to some people. I was actually talking about originally an album called The Early Beatles. Now that came out on Capitol Records in 1965, and I'll try to be as quick as I can about this, but uh, the early Beatles was basically Capitol's version of the Beatles' first album ever recorded called Please Please Me. Please Please Me came out on Parlophone Records in early 1963. The folks at Parlophone sent the Beatles' recordings over to Capitol Records in America because Capitol and Parlophone were both owned by EMI Records, because of that, Capital had the right of first refusal. Capital passed on the Beatles, so the folks in England shopped the Beatles around to other record labels in America, and a small record label right here in Chicago called VJ, which was mainly a blues label, agreed to release the Beatles. So they put together an album called Introducing the Beatles, which was essentially Please Please Me with a few cuts left off of it. Before they could release it, though, the company was literally out of money because the president of the company, Ewart Abner, had a gambling problem and he embezzled company funds to pay off his gambling debts. So they literally could not afford to release the album, 
And because they had no money, they couldn't afford to release the album. And not only that, they weren't paying royalties to their artists, including the Beatles and the Four Seasons. So lawyers came down to VJ and said, don't you dare produce any more records by these people until you pay off what you owe them. So without any money, they couldn't produce any more record, any more Beatles records. Meanwhile, Christmas season 1963, at the end of 1963, beginning in 1964, the Beatles are finally a huge deal in America. The folks at VJ Records remembered, hey, we have a Beatles album sitting right here that we didn't release yet. Why don't we put it out? It will sell. We'll get sued over it. But hey, we'll make a lot more money from sales than they're ever going to sue us for. And that's exactly what happened. They put out the album introducing the Beatles and VJ got sued, not for as much money as they made, though, but they reached an agreement in which they could release those Beatles songs that they already had, but only over the next year. So when 1965 happened, VJ's license expired and the rights to those songs on that album went over to Capitol Records, who then released those songs on an album called The Early Beatles. That was the album I was talking about in that first episode of the podcast. And just to add further to the confusion, in this previous episode, Chapter 24, I once accidentally referred to the early tapes as the early Beatles. I'm sorry, everybody. Totally my fault. But hey, um, I'm done talking now. So, well, not really. We have a whole episode to go through, but I'm going to stop with this intro and move on to the main body of this episode. We will just call this segment, No, My Computer Is Not My Girlfriend. I met my so-called girlfriend in early 1993. There wasn't much to this alleged girlfriend. Um, Very basic, pretty small, not much personality, and not very popular but actually looked pretty attractive and was a huge step up from what I had before. But others who had, well, what some called girlfriends, usually had more to show off to their friends. More personality, more substance, more versatility. But hey, my job didn't pay much, so I couldn't support all that. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? I guess it does. Do I have any regrets dumping what I had? Back then, no, but now... Well, actually, yes. But before I get into that, let me explain something. That was not my girlfriend. At all. In fact, it wasn't even a living organism. It was a computer. Specifically, a low-spec Amiga 600. My peers who had Amiga computers usually had something more powerful, like an Amiga 1200 or a souped-up Amiga 500. The journalism department at my college had an Amiga 2000 in the radio station, several Amiga 500s in the print journalism room, another Amiga 2000 with a video toaster in the TV studio, and an Amiga 3000 in one of the offices. Where does this girlfriend attribute come from then? Well, it came from people who had, as they were known back then, IBM compatibles. They would attempt to make fun of Amiga users by saying, Amiga is Spanish for girlfriend, so your girlfriend's your computer. (laughs) Of course, that's false. Amiga is Spanish for friend, specifically a female friend, as opposed to Amigo, which is a male friend. Novia is Spanish for girlfriend. But for 13 years, my one and only computer was an Amiga. 
I guess the reason I got into Amiga can be traced back to late May 1988 when I graduated from 8th grade. Uh, Yeah, I know, depending on where you're from, the concept of graduating from 8th grade is weird, but uh, just stick with me, huh? I got a few presents from the parents, one of which was a Commodore 64. Well, actually a Commodore 64C, which was a slightly overhauled version of the 64, with slightly updated chips on the motherboard, and also the casing was a little bit streamlined. Commodore redesigned both the Commodore 64 and the Commodore 128 so they'd closer resemble Amiga 500s. And, uh, May of 1988 was pretty late in the game to be a new Commodore 64 user. Most people had already left the world of 8-bit computers behind for 16-bit computers. Those who had an Atari 400, 800, XL, or XE had upgraded to Atari ST. Apple II users got rid of their 2 Pluses, 2 E's, 2 C's, and 2 GS's after the famous Super Bowl ad and brought in the Macintosh. Commodore 64 and 128 users typically tossed their computers in the attic and got Amigas. Some of the Apple, Atari, and Commodore crowd, along with those who used um, other 8-bit computers such as the TRS-80, or Trash-80 as most of us called it, Timex Sinclair, and others actually abandoned those brands completely and went PC and told the rest of us to get a quote-unquote real computer. Hmm. Now that I think about it, to this day, those who use Windows still tell those of us with better computers to get a real computer. For a few years, I did get by with the Commodore 64, a few games I bought in the store, and eventually an Epson Homewriter 10 printer. That setup served me all through high school. I did term papers on that thing, and, you know, it did the job. But it was probably around summer of 1991 when my friend Andrew started talking about a new computer that I had heard brief rumblings about over the past couple of years. Pretty soon after that, he acquired an Amiga 500 to replace his Commodore 64. Andrew would preach about the graphics and sound capabilities. He'd talk about how the Amiga could leave a PC in the dust. And the one thing that was the big selling point for him? Amiga, since its inception, had multitasking something no other computer could do reliably. During homecoming week that year, I got to see what Andrew was talking about. He somehow arranged to borrow a huge projection screen TV from the school, and he set up his Amiga 500 on that TV during one of the festivities and loaded up a demo of the game Pinball Dreams, and anybody who wanted to try it out could come over and play a few rounds. It was really something. The incredible detail in that pinball board. The silver ball was quite convincing, and how that screen would magically scroll very quickly and smoothly to follow the ball up and down the board. Sweet Jesus, this was amazing! How in the hell Andrew could afford one of these beasts, I had no idea. My $4 an hour part-time job at the library certainly wouldn't cut it for me. Oh well. Shortly after the new year, so this would be 1992 of course, um, Andrew sold me his Commodore 64 software and a few accessories for a whopping 10 bucks. Among those accessories was a Commodore 1670, which was a 1200 baud modem. He showed me how to dial up to local BBSs, uh, that's bulletin board systems, uh, and uh, post on message boards and download files on those BBSs. Basically, if you don't know what a BBS is, eh, think Facebook, but without all the graphics and stuff. That, though, being exposed to the world of BBSs was seriously a life-changing moment as I met many of my friends via these local boards. Some of them are good friends to this day. 
Through these boards, I learned more about the wonders of the Amiga, apparently a graphics and sound powerhouse. TV stations used Amigas, using such products as Broadcast Titler for character generation and Video Toaster for live production. Amigas were used in the production of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5, and Disney animators would part with their Amigas over their dead bodies. Wow, if that's what Amigas are used for, then how can I go wrong by getting one? So flash forward a wee bit to the fall of 1992. College starts. I start with an undeclared major, but likely going to be computer science. And a computer science major in 1992 couldn't rely on an 8-bit Commodore 64. After all, I wouldn't really be able to do my Fortran homework on it. Uh, yeah, I could go to a computer lab on campus, but I'd better hope there's a computer open with the features that I need. Now, I'm about to reveal a weird thing about my life at the time. Yeah, I was 18 years old, so technically I was an adult. But somehow I didn't yet have a checking account. I never really thought to go out and get one on my own. All I had was a savings account that was open when I was a little kid, and ergo my parents had control of it. At that time, Amigas weren't sold in brick-and-mortar stores, at least not in my area. If you wanted an Amiga, you had to do it over mail order. And if I wanted to buy something expensive through mail order, I'd have to have my parents write a check or make a credit card payment, and then I'd have to give them the cash. Numerous times that year, I had pled my case about why I need to get an Amiga, but my case was always overruled. It didn't help that my parents didn't understand technology and why the Commodore 64 they bought me four years earlier wasn't sufficient. But in February 1993, a store called Tenex in Mishawaka, Indiana, had the latest Amigas, the Amiga 600 and 1200. That 1200 looked pretty sweet, but man, any Amiga would be a huge improvement over my Commodore 64. So I started building my case to buy the 600, the cheapest model, priced at $299.99. Unlike the Commodore 64, it had a built-in floppy drive. <laughs> my Commodore 64 didn't come with a floppy drive, that was a separate purchase. And I could also use the same TV set that I was using my Commodore 64 on, so I wouldn't need to buy a separate monitor. Printers are universal, so I could print on the same Epson HomeWriter 10 that I was using with the Kami. Would it be nice to have a hard drive or more RAM? Sure, but eh, I could worry about that later. Let me just get the computer first. So I presented my case. A couple of days later, my mother brought up the possibility of just driving me to Mishawaka to get the Amiga. Wait, what? What? So the idea of getting an Amiga wasn't totally shot down? And hey, Mishawaka was a two-hour drive. I mean, that my parents made that drive all the time to visit my grandparents in Wisconsin. But anyway, a few days after this possibility was mentioned, my dad told me, give us the cash, we're going to order you that computer. Woohoo! Just to give you an idea of the features of the Amiga 600, critics trashed it. It was essentially a redesigned version of the low-end Amiga 500+, Plus, but with few, if any, options for an upgrade. Basically, it was little more than a glorified gaming console, the critics said. But I didn't care, I didn't need much. I especially loved that it was so small, about the size of a thick laptop, and ergo very easy to move around. Keyboard and innards are all in one unit. All you needed to do was add a monitor. 
the stock Amiga 600 that was on its way to me had a megabyte of graphics memory, or chip RAM, as some people call it. And um, when you think about how I was going to be upgrading from a computer that had 64 kilobytes of RAM, period, that was a pretty significant upgrade. Built-in 3.5-inch double-density floppy disk drive on the right side. One of the bragging points that we Amiga users had over users of other computers was that our floppy disks could handle more data. The same blank 3.5-inch floppy disks that everybody used, well, if you formatted them for PCs and Atari STs, they could only carry 720 kilobytes. Format them on a Mac, 800 kilobytes. Amiga, though, 880 kilobytes. And again, that was a lot back then. The Amiga 600 had a 4096 color palette compared to, oh, 16 on the Commodore 64. Then again, the Amiga 1200 had a palette of over 16 million colors and could display 262,000 of them on the screen at once. But I wasn't about to try to convince my parents that I needed a $400 machine when a $300 one was out. The Amiga 600 ran at 7 megahertz, which... I guess was pretty damn slow for then, but it sure beat the 1 megahertz of my Commodore 64. Then again, an Amiga 1200 just bare bones out of the box without any acceleration whatsoever added on would run twice as fast. But again, I wasn't about to try to convince my parents that I needed a $400 machine when there was a $300 machine available. It didn't include a hard drive, but you could get one as an additional option. Inside the Amiga 600, though, was an IDE port and a metal hard drive caddy that would allow you to add a 2.5-inch laptop-style drive. That actually was an advantage on the Amiga 600. The, um, I believe the 500 models didn't come with an IDE port or any other hard drive port. They had to buy that separately. But anyway, on the left side of the Amiga 600 case, there was a slot for a PCM-CIA card. I don't know if you remember those devices. I don't think they really lasted long, but there were a few PCM-CIA-based devices on the market back then. But I think the intended purpose of that slot was to upgrade the memory using what the Amiga called fast RAM as opposed to the built-in megabyte of RAM that was called chip RAM or graphics RAM, which itself could be upgraded to 2 megabytes via a slot in the bottom of the case, also known as a trapdoor. And if you were lucky, that expanded chip RAM module would also include a battery-backed clock. Uh, yeah, that's right, the Amiga 600 didn't even have a built-in clock. You would have to set the time and date every time you started up, um, assuming that it was important enough for you to do that. Uh, being a Commodore 64 user, uh, the Commodore 64 did not have a uh, battery-backed clock. Uh, I was not even used to a computer that maintained the date and time anyway, so that didn't matter to me. The controller ports on the Amiga were standard 9-pin D connectors, so I could still use the same controllers that I used on my Atari 2600 and Commodore 64, but the Amiga would be the first computer that I ever used with a mouse. The Commodore 64, most of my operations involved using the built-in uh, basic interpreter, loading games and stuff by typing in commands in the basic interpreter, but uh, there was a graphic operating system similar to Windows and Finder and all that on the Commodore 64 called Geos, but I rarely used it, and when I did, I just used a joystick to control the pointer. But anyway, the day the Amiga 600 arrived, needless to say, I rushed it to my bedroom and I hooked it up. Wait, why did I say that if it was needless to say? Oh, who cares? 
It had a built-in composite output, which went to the TV computer switch box that was on my TV set and used by my Commodore 64 and Atari 2600. There were also built-in stereo audio outputs, the two standard white and red RCA ports you see in any other audio device. And everybody has at least 600 RCA cables laying around, so I quickly connected the outputs to my boombox. And in a configuration I have never seen before, the power switch was actually on the external power supply that plugs into the wall on a large but hollow plastic box. I connected the power supply to the back of the computer, plugged it in, and powered up the Amiga 600. A screen with an animation of floppy disks floating up and entering a disk drive greeted me. I put in one of the games that came with the computer, RoboCop 3D. As the game was loading up, the ominous intro music exploded in full stereo out of my boombox speakers. Whoa! Just the sound alone made that purchase worth it. I ran downstairs and told my mom as much, but she didn't seem to care. I ran back upstairs to do some serious deep diving into my new computer. Overall, though, I didn't really like RoboCop 3D. To this day, I've never seen a RoboCop movie. But uh, the gameplay was pretty choppy, but the graphics and sound were certainly miles above even the new PCs that were in the computer labs at my college. I tried the other two games that were packaged with the computer, Myth and Shadow of the Beast 3. The loud and clear speech samples in Myth, along with the background sound effects, put my mind in a whole new world. Come closer. Stop. And I couldn't help but be in awe of the parallax scrolling in the background music of Shadow of the Beast 3. Truth be told, I wasn't a fan of any of those three games, and I never got really all that far in them, but they were all I had at the time. Of course, I didn't get the computer to just play games, I also needed something that was fully functioning to do other applications. So now, I had to try the actual operating system, which was Amiga OS 2.05. The graphical user interface, or GUI, spelled G-U-I, was Workbench 2.05, basically the Amiga's equivalent to Windows. Now, running the system off a single floppy drive isn't the most optimal way to run basic computer applications, but I still loved what I saw. Even on a floppy-based system, it still booted up faster than any hard drive-based PC that I had used up to that point. Using that thing couldn't have been easier. Double-click on icons to run a program, hold down the right mouse button to access drop-down menus, and multitasking. Multitasking! I had never seen that before! I could have multiple different programs open at the same time. My Commodore 64 couldn't do that. The Macs and the Windows 3.1 machines in the computer labs also couldn't do that. I was officially in love with the Amiga 600. Which... By the way, does not mean that my Amiga 600 was my girlfriend. We Amiga users had to put up with that girlfriend crap from our PC-loving friends who would then tell us to get real computers in one breath, then bitch and moan about their drivers not working and their graphics cards needing upgrading the next breath. I did find myself between a rock and a hard place, though. The Babbage's at the mall no longer stocked Amiga software. In fact... Nowhere nearby stocked any Amiga products whatsoever. If you didn't have a Mac or a Windows machine, you had to deal with mail order and BBSs. Which is actually fine, except I didn't have a terminal program for my Amiga and ergo could not connect it with BBSs. 
Thankfully, though, a sysop, or a system operator, of a local Amiga-based BBS was about to host a copy party. Now, full disclosure, copy parties that local BBSs threw may have involved trading not only public domain and shareware software, but um, also uh, maybe some pirated commercial titles. But having said that, I brought my Amiga 600 and a ton of blank floppy disks to the party, and when I told people that I was a new Amiga user, I was swamped with other Amiga users, practically jamming software down my throat. Here, you're going to need this. Oh, take this too. This here? Yeah, you're going to need that too. This, this, this. Terminal programs to connect to BBSs, graphic conversion utilities, file compressors, music players, games, the works. So now... I was set for a while, at least in terms of software. But a computer with just a floppy drive and one megabyte of memory, it's gotta be limiting, right? You bet. A 10x catalog arrived, and they had some Amiga 600 hard drives for sale. I didn't need a huge drive, just 40 megabytes would suffice. I made another case with my parents as to why I needed to get an expensive piece of computer equipment. Much to my shock, my dad handed me his credit card and told me to place the order. I called Tenex and asked for the 40 megabyte hard drive, but the lady on the phone told me they were sold out. Ugh. I put the phone down and told my dad that I'd have to order a bigger and therefore more expensive hard drive. Well, he was pissed. He accused Tenex of bait and switch, but I pushed a little, and for only $250, I ordered an 85 megabyte hard drive. Now, that was huge for an Amiga 600 back then but I eventually did upgrade to a whopping 140 megabytes. Around the time when I got that 140 megabyte drive, it was considered a really good deal if you paid between a dollar and a dollar and five cents per megabyte. And kind of like I hinted at earlier, that actually was a selling point for the Amiga 600. Yeah, it was basically a redesigned Amiga 500 Plus, but it had an internal two and a half inch IDE port. Problem though, the warranty stickers over one of the screws on the case. So by opening the case to add a hard drive, you void your warranty. Ah, but wait. 10X actually sent a replacement warranty sticker just for that purpose. They told me after you close the case, after you put the hard drive in, stick that warranty sticker over the old one. So I opened the case, mounted and connected the hard drive, closed the case, put the warranty sticker over the screw, plugged the power supply back in, and powered up the computer and I heard the telltale sign of a hard drive spinning up. Excellent. Um, except that the drive wasn't recognized at all, not even as an unformatted drive. As far as my Amiga 600 was concerned, there were no hard drives connected at all. I got on the horn with 10X. Chris, the tech over there, told me to check the Kickstart version. Um, by the way, I don't remember if I mentioned this, but Kickstart is basically the, uh, I guess the Amiga CMOS, the uh, BIOS or something. Uh, I don't remember the actual definition of it, but it's basically in the hardware itself. It's what makes the computer actually work. But anyway, again, Chris told me check the Kickstart version, and if it ends with any number besides zero or five, I needed a new Kickstart ROM chip. And sure enough, the Kickstart version ended with something like .299. According to Chris, that version of Kickstart didn't have hard drive support. Some Amiga 600s that shipped without prepackaged hard drives had that Kickstart chip without hard drive support. He told me to give them a few days and they'd ship out a replacement Kickstart chip at no charge. 
Chris also told me how to carefully remove the existing kickstart chip and how to take the new chip and gently rock it back and forth on a tabletop to slightly bend the pins so that the chip would fit in the socket properly. A few days later, the new kickstart chip arrived, and following Chris's instructions, I used a flathead screwdriver to pry out the old one, took the new chip out of the package, and rocked it back and forth on the pins, and pressed it into the socket. Then I booted the Amiga off the floppy as usual, and when the workbench screen came up, there was a new icon on the screen representing that hard drive. Woohoo! So I partitioned it, formatted it, installed the operating system to it, and rebooted without a floppy, and there was my workbench screen happily operating off the hard drive. People who are used to modern computers will just never appreciate the world of difference between running a computer from a single floppy drive and running one from a hard drive. It seriously opens up whole new worlds. The first thing I did after getting Workbench up and running off the hard drive was to install Tetris Pro, which was a public domain version of the famous Russian Falling Blocks game. I'd been playing it off a of floppy for quite a while at that point. What was jarring to me, besides the huge speed increase of loading the game from a hard drive instead of a floppy disk, was that there was music in the game. I never heard music in the game before. I didn't know that just a simple hard drive upgrade would suddenly... I don't know, maybe it freed up some memory to play music. But hey, I'm not going to question it. I liked what I heard. After installing the hard drive, though, I did eventually find that running a computer off a megabyte of RAM was getting to be kind of sluggish. I had two options to expand the memory. Either get a megabyte of graphics RAM and a trapdoor expansion, or get a PCMCIA memory card to expand the fast RAM. I opted for the fast RAM, thinking that it's called fast RAM for a reason. But in retrospect, I probably should have gotten the A601 chip RAM expansion module for a full 2 megabytes of graphics memory. And uh, that module also had a battery-backed clock, but oh well. Now, at least back then, the Amiga 600 was not the most expandable Amiga computer. Every other Amiga model had an easy way to install a faster processor, either by adding an expansion board or by replacing the actual central processing unit chip. The other Amigas were capable of using internal peripherals like video cards, internal modems, and sound cards. The Amiga 600, though? Really? Just those two forms of RAM expansion and a hard drive. Everything else had to be added externally, which severely limited the options of upgrading that computer. But you know what? I still loved that Amiga 600. It did the job, the games were great, and its small form factor made it easy to move. In fact, when I worked for my college's football team, I would bring the Amiga 600 with me on road trips and have some late-night gaming sessions with some other football staffers and players. Sometimes I would bring it to the football equipment room to help me with inventory. And of course, because I love music and the Amiga was built for working on graphics and sound, I used the Amiga 600 to make music. The Amiga platform introduced a special kind of sound file called Mod, which is short for Music Module. And mods would be traded on BBSs all the time. And one of the cool things is you could make a mod file and your PC-loving friends could play it too because eventually the IBM-compatible world got mod players. But a mod file consisted of four channels of short sequence sound samples. One channel might be dedicated to drum samples, another might have a sample of a bass guitar, and so on. 
my music program of choice, Octomed Pro, an eight-channel version of another piece of software called MED, short for Music Editor. It would use some kind of technical trickery to allow you to program eight channels, even though the Amiga could only handle four, and in, quite frankly, the eight-channel sound files didn't sound very good, and very few people used them, so I just stuck with four channels. I'd eventually get a Yamaha keyboard and a MIDI interface, and I would use Octomed to make MIDI sequences. In fact, it was Octomed that I used to make some mod files that supplied the music for the big project that my TV class worked on together. I composed the music myself, and uh, we did a soap opera kind of thing, and I wrote the theme music and the incidental instrumental music. I just wish that I had made a copy of those two episodes that we did, or at least kept the music. But still... At the annual awards banquet held by the college's radio and TV stations, I won an award for original music score, the first such award in the department's history. Obviously, I've been going on about my Amiga experiences, how I loved using Amiga computers, but uh, that didn't mean that I didn't encounter some pitfalls that were unique to the Amiga platform. For one thing, outside of TV studios, Amiga was not very popular in the United States, Really, partly because Commodore never advertised the damn computer. It was all word of mouth. But Amiga was massively popular in Europe. As a result, a lot of software out there would force the Amiga into a PAL display mode. Um, for those of you who don't know, in Europe, the TV standard is called PAL, or Phase Alternating Line. In North America, and I think Japan, the standard is NTSC, or National Television System Committee, or as my friends in England would say, never twice the same color or not tested since Christ. Personally, I think a PAL display was worse. The PAL refresh rate is 50 hertz, while NTSC is 60 hertz. Also, a PAL screen has 625 lines, so think about this. Refreshing 625 lines 50 times per second versus refreshing fewer lines, I think, what is it, 520 in the U.S.? Refreshing fewer lines at a faster rate? Yeah, PAL is pretty jarring on the eyes if you're used to NTSC. However, though, the TV set that I was using to monitor the Amiga couldn't display PAL. Well, it could display PAL. The problem is it would throw the vertical hold out of whack, and the TV didn't have a manual vertical hold adjust. So eventually, I bought a used Amiga monitor that would, after a little bit of tweaking with the controls on the back, be able to handle both PAL and NTSC pretty well. Also, a monitor provided a much sharper image than a TV set. Another weird thing about the Amiga, or at least to me, it's kind of weird. Now, it's one thing for your computer to not be powerful enough to handle certain tasks or run certain software. But on the Amiga, it was actually possible for your Amiga to be literally too powerful to handle certain pieces of software. There actually was such a thing as having too much RAM. And uh, this was mainly true with games that would run on older Amigas, such as the uh, 500 and the 1000. Some games that ran great with only 256 or 512 kilobytes of memory would freak out if there was a megabyte present, so you'd have to run a program called a degrader to fool your Amiga into thinking that it had less RAM. Some software, again mainly games, wouldn't run if your Kickstart chip was too new, so you'd have to force the Amiga to boot with an older version of Kickstart. To do that, you had three options. One, take the Kickstart software ripped from an older ROM and load it manually by software. Two, actually switch out your Kickstart chip with another. 
or three, get a special module that could hold multiple kickstart chips, allowing you to choose which one to boot into. Sometimes you would find that the main processor in your Amiga was too advanced to run certain pieces of software, again, mostly certain games. If your system is running off a Motorola 68040 CPU, it might not be able to run games that you love to play on your older system running off a bare-bones 68000. I think there was at least one degrader app that could trick the software into thinking you were running from a less advanced CPU, but I might be wrong about that. And then there were the system errors. Perhaps your mouse would freeze, the power LED would flicker between bright green and light green, and then you'd suddenly get a black screen with a recoverable error message in yellow text, surrounded by a yellow border, and pressing the left mouse button would return you to the workbench screen. Or if you were really unlucky, you'd get a message in red text, surrounded by a red border, telling you, software failure, press left mouse button to continue. If you got that red message, it meant something crashed big time and your Amiga was about to reboot. Which meant that if you didn't save stuff you were working on recently, you were scarrooed. If you had an Amiga using an older Kickstart ROM that is older than version 2, that software failure message would include the phrase Guru Meditation, followed by two cryptic 8-digit hexadecimal numbers followed by a period. Now, if I remember correctly, the Guru Meditation has its roots back when Amiga, in its pre-Commodore days, was a company that designed hardware for other systems. The techies at Amiga designed a controller for the Atari 2600 video game console and called it the Joyboard. You would operate it by standing on it as if it were a skateboard. Think of the Nintendo Wii balance board, basically. The story I heard is that if one of the developers at Amiga encountered a crash, that developer would be sent to sit on the joyboard and meditate cross-legged to combat the frustration. By the time I got my Amiga 600, though, the guru meditation had been phased out. Sure, those red software failure error messages still occurred, but the two eight-digit hex numbers were now labeled as error number and task, making it slightly less cryptic. No more guru meditation, though. But I did first encounter the guru meditation when I was using one of the Amiga 500s that was in the classroom where I had my radio classes in college. After I got my Amiga 600, I'd spend some time on one of the Amiga 500s after my radio course was over and see if I could grab some software that I could bring home to my Amiga 600. And something crashed and I saw that red flashing message, but it said guru meditation. I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Well, those Amiga 500s were running on version 1.3 of the operating system and ergo running on an earlier kickstart. Besides these weird quirks, though, Amiga was also known for some cool things it could do that PCs and Macs couldn't do at the time. Mind you, on my unaccelerated Amiga 600 with only a megabyte of RAM and 7 megahertz CPU, I was able to play many of the same games and do the same kind of graphic and sound processing that my friends with IBM compatibles needed graphics cards, sound cards, and at least eight times the RAM with a 33 megahertz Intel 486 CPU. One of the reasons for that, though, that my Amiga with its 7 megahertz CPU could keep up with those other computers was that the Amiga didn't just run on the main CPU. Amigas, unlike most other computers at the time, had several sub-processors on the motherboard. There was a separate processor to handle floppy drive operations, another to handle hard drive operations, a processor to handle graphics, a processor to handle sound, a processor to handle allocating RAM, and it goes on like that. 
The PC, though, you just had that Intel CPU do most of the work. But on the Amiga, the Motorola CPU would just farm out all the operations to the other processors on board, allowing operations to get done just as quickly as seemingly higher-spec mainstream computers. We didn't need sound cards on the Amiga. The Amiga had four channels of sound built in. Um, I should disclaim, though, that it was only 8-bit sound, and the stereo was kind of forced. Two channels would come out of the left speaker, and two channels would come out of the right speaker, and there was no way to really center that sound. But certain Amiga models did have 16-bit sound cards available for them. Without any hardware modifications, the Amiga could also read and write to PC-formatted floppy disks, and because Atari ST formatted floppy disks were so close to PC formatted disks, as kind of a side effect, Amigas could also read and write to Atari ST formatted floppies because it thought they were PC floppies. Thing is, though, you couldn't go the other way around. You couldn't read and write Amiga disks on an Atari or a PC or even a Mac. The Amiga could even emulate a PC. Because my Amiga was on the low end, though, I could only emulate MS-DOS. It wasn't powerful enough to run Windows or any major programs. And because Amigas ran on the same CPUs as Mac computers, Mac emulation was pretty easy, but I never really did that. I mentioned earlier how the Amiga 600 was kind of frowned upon in the Amiga community because of how limited it was. One of the things contributing to the limitations was that all the chips on the motherboard were soldered in place, while, say, on the Amiga 500, the chips were socketed, and therefore easy to pop out and replace. If one died, you could just stick another one in, or you could upgrade certain chips pretty easily. In fact, one quirk about the Amiga 500, by the way, is that if you discovered a chronic problem that you couldn't trace to software, one possible cure was to literally lift the Amiga 500 off your desk and then drop it back onto the desk the force of that fall would actually reseat the chips into their sockets, and quite often that trick worked like a charm. But because all the chips on the 600 were soldered, upgrading was impossible. Or it seemed impossible until a couple of third-party hardware vendors came up with a way to make accelerator cards that worked by putting the cards over the CPU and interrupting one of the lines to the onboard 68000 CPU, allowing the CPU on the accelerator card to take over. Shortly after these accelerators came out, I invested in the Apollo 630, which had a Motorola 68030 CPU attached. There were two options, a 33MHz version with a math coprocessor and a 58MHz version that did not contain said math coprocessor. Oh, I had just been learning about math coprocessors in uh, my operating systems class, so I opted for the 33MHz version. I figured the slightly slower version was worth it if it meant that I had a floating point unit. Then I went to Best Buy and bought an 8MB RAM stick. The accelerator was pretty much useless without additional RAM. So now my Amiga 600 had not only a faster 33MHz CPU with a math coprocessor, but also 8MB of fast RAM. I felt so accomplished, and not just because I had a considerably more powerful Amiga 600, but especially because it meant actually inserting a CPU chip. To me... That was the computer nerd equivalent of a heart transplant. After adding that accelerator, I was able to run a lot more software. And remember how I told you before about how the Amiga could literally be too powerful? Well, thankfully, I didn't really experience that. Or if I did, it wasn't to a significant degree. I don't think any software I ran lost any of its functionality because of the accelerator. Despite having a more powerful Amiga 600, eventually it did get kind of long in the tooth. A palette of 4,096 colors wasn't enough, and I couldn't add a graphics card to improve it. 
I couldn't really add any more RAM unless I got the one megabyte chip RAM expansion, but was it really worth the money? I couldn't really add a CD drive, at least not then. There was a device called a Surf Squirrel that had a SCSI port on it that you inserted in the PCMCIA card, and then you could add a CD drive to that SCSI port. But the problem is, the SCSI port didn't work in the Amiga 600. It only worked if you added the Surf Squirrel to the uh, Amiga 1200. And the reason it was called Surf Squirrel is because it also had a high-speed serial port, which was another kind of pitfall with the Amiga line back then. The serial ports could only handle up to, I think, 28.8K in terms of uh, modem transmission. The Surf Squirrel could handle much faster than that, so it could handle, I think, like in the six-digit range. So if you needed to use a high-speed modem, say 33.6 or 56.7, you had to add a high-speed serial port. Also, hard drives on the 600 were expensive back then because... Two-and-a-half-inch hard drives were significantly more costly than three-and-a-half-inch hard drives. And adding a three-and-a-half-inch hard drive or any three-and-a-half-inch IDE device to a two-and-a-half-inch IDE port was pretty much out of the question. And of course, being a music guy, I needed a way to record sound on the computer. Well, I did have a sound sampler, the DSS-8+, and it was a great sampler, but it was only 8 bits. I needed a 16-bit sound card that would allow me to record. As much as I love that little computer, it just wasn't doing it for me anymore. In late 1998, after I moved to New Jersey, I decided I needed to get rid of the Amiga 600 and get an Amiga 1200. As was the 600, the 1200 was small and self-contained, but not quite as small because it had a full-size keyboard, whereas the 600 lacked a numeric keypad. The 1200 had the AGA chipset with those 16 million colors I mentioned before, and you could upgrade the hell out of an Amiga 1200. Graphics cards, sound cards, accelerators, RAM. You could even easily rehouse an Amiga 1200 into a tower. So I went on the Usenet news group comp.sys.amiga.marketplace and saw that someone was selling an Amiga 4000 with some decent specs and a small bundle of software for 500 bucks. That was a damn good deal back then. And my wife-to-be told me, just go for that. I wanted a 1200, but 4000 was more powerful, so why not? In fact, the 4000 was actually my dream computer for a long time. Same AGA chipset as the 1200, very upgradable, and more powerful overall. The Amiga 4000 that I bought used had a Motorola 68040 processor running, I believe, at 40 megahertz. Uh, a stock 1200, by the way, only ran a 68020 at, I think... What was it, 14 megahertz? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it was 14. But anyway, this Amiga 4000 that I bought came with 2 megabytes of chip RAM and 8 megabytes of fast RAM on board. The package also included a CD-ROM drive and not one, but two internal floppies. The previous owner also attached an external fan to the power supply, and it was loud. When I turned it on, it sounded like I was running the microwave, which, uh, by the way, threw Lisa off a few times at first because she thought it was the microwave. Uh, back then, we lived in a pretty tiny one-bedroom apartment, and my computer was always housed on the kitchen table. The 600 had a small footprint, but the 4000, that was a more traditional computer. Keyboard separate, large box for the actual hardware. So that took up even more room on the already crowded kitchen table. When I first got the 4000, I did what I liked to do anytime a computer entered the house. I took the lid off and examined what was inside. 
The CPU was actually housed on an easy-to-remove daughter card, no screws or anything. Just pop it out, put another one in, bam, done. Next to the RAM socket was a jumper that allowed you to choose between 2 and 8 megabytes of chip RAM. Whoa, 8 megabytes of chip RAM? Uh, before I get into that, by the way, uh, those of you who don't know what a jumper is, on some motherboards there might be a small group of pins that have a removable black cap on them or a white cap or just a, a removable cap, doesn't matter the color. <laughs> and uh, you can remove or reposition that cap for hardware configuration. But I found out that many Amiga diehards call that chip RAM jumper on the Amiga 4000 the free beer jumper. And why is it called the free beer jumper? Well, it's because the most chip RAM that was ever possible on an Amiga was 2 megabytes. Commodore had planned to implement a potential 8 megabyte upgrade, but it was never actually done. So that jumper became known as the free beer jumper because by changing it to the 8 megabyte configuration, you were just as likely to get free beer as you were to get 8 megabytes of chip RAM. It would always come up as 2. There was another daughter card that had these slots similar to what you'd find in a PC, but they were Amiga-specific slots called Zorro slots. There were also ISA slots, ISA, remember those things? They were common in PCs at the time the Amiga 4000 first came out, but you actually needed to buy and install a bridge board to activate those slots, and they were primarily used when emulating other computers. Oh, and it also had a battery-backed clock. I just had to set the clock once and never worry about it again. There was a known problem with the batteries in Amiga 4000s, though. The clock batteries were those barrel-style things, and they were notorious for eventually leaking and ruining the motherboard after a certain number of years. So many Amiga 4000 do-it-yourselfers would actually remove that battery and replace it with a watch-style battery. I never did that. Uh, I I didn't know how to operate a soldering iron at the time, and I, I one of the Amiga dealers I actually sent it to for some uh, tune-ups and stuff. Actually said, "No, no let's not let's not bother with a coin-style battery. I'll just give you a brand new barrel battery." So eh, whatever, it lasted. <laughs> but anyway, the first upgrade I made to that machine was to get an I/O extender card made by GVP. That card had a couple of high-speed nine-pin serial ports, and remember, I needed that to use a high-speed modem. There was also an additional parallel port and I think a MIDI port. Then I upgraded the graphics with a Villagetronic Picasso 4 graphics card. That card offered even more colors on the screen than the AGA chipset built into the Amiga, and it had a built-in scan doubler and flicker fixer. Let me explain that. The Amiga could be used with a standard PC VGA monitor, but eventually VGA monitors would sync too fast for the Amiga to keep up with because the Amiga's sync rate was so low. So you'd actually have to buy a separate scan doubler for the Amiga to double up its speed so it would sync properly. And even then, the Amiga was very prone to flicker on VGA monitors, so you would also need to buy a flicker fixer. Thankfully, that Picasso graphics card had both built in. You could also add on to the graphics card, like the Concierto 16-bit sound card, which I eventually bought, and the Paraglide 3D graphics board, which I... Never bought because Villagetronic never got around to producing it. Well, Lisa was ticked off at me for spending 400 bucks on a graphics card. Yeah, that's how much a graphics card cost for the Amiga. Well, because our wedding was just around the corner and she wanted me to save as much money as possible. Which, um, when you have an Amiga, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Amiga is an expensive machine to maintain. 
I also bought an accelerator with a 50 megahertz 68060 CPU and slots on it that would allow you to add up to 128 megabytes of fast RAM. Oh, and it also came with a SCSI port so I could add SCSI devices like scanners and CD burners and things. Speaking of which, when the wedding did happen, Lisa and I bought a CD burner with some of the money we got as wedding presents. And back then, that was a pretty huge deal. If I remember correctly, it cost $225 at CompUSA. We got a SCSI model, of course, so it could be used on both our computers. Uh, Lisa's work computer that she kept at home had a SCSI port, so uh, we could use it on either my Amiga or her Windows machine. And if I remember correctly, that uh, CD burner went 16-speed read, 4-speed write, 4-speed rewrite. Back then, I think blank CDs were something like $2 a pop. But anyway, now that I had a CD burner and a 16-bit sound card, I could digitize records and tapes that I couldn't get on CD, and I could burn them to CD now, right? <laughs> well, wrong. CDs are mastered at a resolution of 16 bits and a frequency of 44.1 kilohertz. The Concierto sound card on my Picasso 4 graphics card actually couldn't record stereo at those specs. My options were either record at a lower frequency in 16 bits, or 44.1 kHz in only 12 bits, or record only in mono. Uh, yeah, no. Um, time to get rid of the Concierto and find a better sound card. And by the way, those of you not familiar with Amiga wonder why I'm saying Concierto instead of Concerto. Uh, it is spelled C-O-N-C-I-E-R-T-O. <laughs> now, there was another Amiga sound card that I had read about in a couple of British Amiga magazines, the Prelude. They were massively popular over in Europe. But for some reason, none of the Amiga dealers here in the States carried that one. Once again, thanks to comp.sys.amiga.marketplace, I was able to get a used Prelude. And let me tell you, that was one hell of a sound card. It had more inputs than you would ever need, and a built-in mixer, plus a MIDI port. And most importantly, it could easily record stereo sound in 16-bit resolution at 44.1 kilohertz. That thing was such a great sound card. It didn't take me long to figure out why those Brits loved it so much. Only problem I found was that when I recorded on the Prelude, it overheated, and it would not record if it overheated. I was able to fix that problem by putting a cooling fan over the main processor on the Prelude card, though. Oh, speaking of British Amiga magazines, yeah, for the most part, I had to go to Barnes & Noble or Borders and get Amiga magazines imported from England. When I was an Amiga user, I think there were two American Amiga magazines. There was Amiga World and Amazing Computing for the Commodore Amiga, both of which ceased publication in the early 90s. But the British magazines, CU Amiga and Amiga Format, lasted for quite a while. They were actually better than the American magazines in a couple of ways. For one thing, the American magazines were mostly advertisements and product reviews, while the UK magazines also included a lot of tutorials. Plus, they came with floppy disks and eventually CD-ROMs loaded with software. But with those UK magazines and my Amiga 4000, I was all set. I had AGA graphics and beyond. I had a Prelude sound card. And I had a computer that could play back MP3s at full quality. I couldn't do that on my Amiga 600, even after adding the accelerator. I could play some more advanced games than I could before, but I kept adding on to the 4000 to the point that the case was getting pretty crowded. And I was running out of expansion slots. 
all that put together, the crowdedness, the dual floppy disks, there was not a lot of breathing room in that case, so the computer was in danger of overheating. I wasn't willing to part with any of the internal upgrades, so my only choice? Have the Amiga 4000 converted to a tower. So I shipped it to my Amiga dealer of choice, Software Hut in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I had them ship the completed tower to my place of work. When it arrived, my office mate asked me what was in the box. I said it was my newly towered Amiga 4000. And Joe said, Why, Sean, I didn't know you're a dinosaur collector. <laughs> what you... <sighs> but anyway, the cool thing about the tower my computer was now cased in, uh, it was branded the Power Tower 4000. It actually had more Zorro slots than the original Amiga 4000 shipped with, which meant <laughs> I could do more upgrades. Yes! Right around the time that I had that thing rehoused in the tower, there were new Amiga Accelerator cards out there that contained PowerPC chips. The PowerPC was the CPU that the then-current Macintosh computers were running on, and uh, it was a pretty dang powerful processor. Problem, though. These Accelerator cards were hella expensive. We're talking $900. The PowerPC chip itself was costly, but those accelerator cards actually had two CPUs. Most existing Amiga software could only run on the original Motorola 68000 series processors, and the PowerPC was not a Motorola 68000 series processor. In the Amiga 3000 and 4000, to upgrade the CPU, you actually had to remove a daughter card that contained the old CPU. So you take that card out, no more CPU, meaning basically, essentially, really, no computer. That's the heart, or maybe brains, of your computer. So to maintain compatibility with older software, the PowerPC cards not only had the PowerPC chip on them, but they also had a Motorola 68000 series processor, which, yes, means that the accelerator cards actually had two CPUs, one for compatibility with the old Amiga stuff, and the PowerPC that would kick into effect when a PowerPC program was loaded. I eventually ordered the CyberStorm card that had the 233 MHz PowerPC CPU and a 50 MHz 68060 partner CPU, which uh, that card was the most expensive of the ones. But now I could play even more advanced games, and now I could actually convert files to MP3 at a reasonable speed. The Motorola 68000 series, it would take about half an hour on the fastest of those to make a three-minute MP3 file. But after a few months, maybe even sooner, that cyberstorm died. The computer wouldn't boot. I called Software Hut. Chris, their tech. Hmm. Did every Amiga dealer have a tech named Chris? <laughs> but anyway, Chris invited me to bring my computer over, seeing as I lived in New Jersey. Two-hour drive, but hey, if I can get this thing fixed in one day, great! And let me tell you, Software Hut was an Amiga lover's paradise. Seriously, if there was an Amiga product you could think of, there was at least one of them in the workshop there. They even had some oddball devices I'd never seen or heard of. Uh, Chris told me they were special modified Amigas that were made for information kiosks and other things like that. I could have spent all day there just looking at stuff. But Chris checked out the accelerator card. He worked on that thing. He thought that maybe the CPU chips were just possibly loosened from the socket. I actually saw him 
push his thumbs down on the CPU chips and literally lift himself in the air with all the force, but it still didn't work. He determined that it was basically a total loss, so he was going to send it back to the manufacturer, DCE, over in Germany and get a replacement. He gave me a loaner accelerator card to use in the meantime. Uh, without it, again, my Amiga wouldn't boot because the accelerator card had the CPU on it. The loaner wasn't a PowerPC card, but that was okay. Uh, it was just a 68060 accelerator card so I could still have a workable computer. Not even kidding, though. A year went by before I heard a word. Chris gave me an email address for DCE and recommended that I email them and give them a piece of my mind. Well, two weeks after I sent a nasty email, I heard from Chris. DCE had finally sent the replacement card. And you know what happened? That one died after a month or two as well. Chris offered to send it back to DCE for me, but he said, you're probably going to have to wait at least another year for a replacement. So I said, no, let me just keep the loaner you gave me. I'll just send this back for a refund. So he gave me the price difference between the Cyberstorm PowerPC card and the loaner card. I figured, you know, I can live without a PowerPC. And it turns out that those Cyberstorm cards first came out under a brand called Phase 5. This was not a Phase 5 branded card. Turns out the Phase 5 ones were rock solid. But unfortunately, Software Hut didn't have any. So the DCEs were unreliable. So that was it for me with the DCE accelerators. Oh well, my power PC dream was over. Uh, um, until 2004, when it was announced that a brand new Amiga computer had been released and it ran off a G3. In case you don't remember, in case you never knew in the first place, the G3 is the PowerPC processor that the famous iMac used. You know, those big bulky iMacs with the built-in monitors and the pointy cases and they came in different colors? Yeah, those things. This new Amiga was called the Amiga 1. It would run at a gigahertz processing speed and would come with 512 megabytes of base RAM, which was definitely a lot more than the total 144 megabytes in my Amiga 4000. The Amiga 1 had PCI slots and therefore would be able to use internal graphics, sound, and other cards that any PC used, provided you could get Amiga-compatible drivers, of course. And it would run a brand new version of the Amiga operating system, OS 4, which would be able to run Amiga apps that were made specifically for the old Motorola CPUs, thanks to just-in-time emulation, so there was no need for a partner CPU. After debating for a few months as to whether I should buy one, well, I decided to take the plunge, and I got one of these $1,200 brand new Amiga systems. By the time I was ready to order, though, the Amiga 1s were already gone, and there was a new machine that replaced it, the Micro Amiga 1C, which had a really small form factor, a Micro ATX motherboard. Uh, if you don't know what that means, well, it's a tiny motherboard. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> I had the option of getting just the motherboard or having a completely configured system with a DVD burner, which is what I opted for. That machine was the size of a shoebox. In fact, I have a picture of that Micro Amiga 1C next to my Power Tower Amiga 4000, and I will absolutely post that in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. So I started the computer up and... Oh my god, that thing was insanely fast. Workbench came up just seconds after the computer booted. Apps opened practically instantly. And a really cool thing, 
something crashed and the message that came up actually called it a guru meditation. The guru is back. Yes. And the cool thing about a guru meditation in Amiga OS 4, it did not force you to reboot. I think I spent about three hours getting acquainted with my new computer until uh, one time when I shut it down and when I powered it back on, it wouldn't boot or give me anything at all on the screen. Oh, good God, what the hell happened here? Uh, Well, Lisa told me just give up for the night, try again tomorrow. So the next morning after she left for work and before I left for work, I powered up the computer and suddenly the Amiga Workbench screen came up. Oh my God, what a relief. I still remember the exact message I left on Lisa's voicemail because I was just so excited. Honey, 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 my computer works. It turns out that the Micro Amiga 1C had a known issue that would sometimes cause that to happen once in a while. The computer would turn on but not actually boot. The solution was just to pop out the CMOS battery out of the motherboard and put it back in. Let's jump ahead a bit to the spring of 2006 when I started my new job in Chicago. While I loved the Amiga platform, there were still things it couldn't do. Amiga could not do Java or Flash, so a lot of websites didn't work properly on any of the Amiga browsers. Now, the Amiga had three main browsers, really. There was AWeb, there was Voyager, and there was iBrowse. But only one of them, I believe it was AWeb, supported cascading style sheets, but not very well. So more and more websites weren't rendering properly. Word processors available for Amiga weren't nearly as featured as the ones on the mainstream platforms and didn't do a great job of converting Word files. I couldn't really burn video DVDs. Due to certain limitations at the time, if you wanted to burn a DVD even on the new G3 Amigas, you had to make an image file, an ISO file, and burn that file. The thing is, you had to keep that ISO file under 2 gigabytes because the file system on the Amiga couldn't handle files that were bigger than that. I was also hoping to eventually become a software developer, but the Amiga wasn't the best platform for that. Even learning to program for the Amiga was like pulling teeth, and you had to pay an arm and a leg to get the proper files needed to successfully make Amiga apps in the C programming language. Sure, I could boot into Linux with the new Amiga, it easily ran Debian Linux, and I actually did have a dual boot going on so I could run Linux if I wanted to, but even that wasn't a viable solution. Plus, even though my new Amiga used standard PC peripherals, it was still an expensive platform to maintain. I confess to Lisa that I might have to give up my beloved Amiga and get a PC. God bless her, she said. Why give it up? Just get a PC and keep the Amiga as a hobby. Which is exactly what I did. I have always hated Windows with every fiber of my being. Well, most Microsoft products, actually. And I didn't want Microsoft to get a cent of my money. So, I bought a used Dell from someone on Craigslist. But this was also during some rough times. Lisa and I were living apart. I think I mentioned on this podcast before that when I got my job in Chicago, Lisa had to stay behind in New Jersey for a year to finish her master's degree. Also, she had just lost her job, and she was making money by teaching test prep classes part-time, which meant she didn't really have a steady work schedule. So, money was pretty tight. Thanks to a payroll screw-up, Lisa didn't get a pretty hefty paycheck that was owed to her, which was not good. Rent was due, and we couldn't wait another two weeks for either of us to get paid. We didn't want to ask the landlords for leniency, so I decided this was the final straw. I was going to cut the Amiga cord. 
my precious Micro Amiga 1C would go up on eBay. There's no way it wouldn't sell. By this time, systems that could run Amiga OS 4 were no longer being made, but they were still in high demand. I started the bidding at $900. Well, the thing ended up selling for close to $1,500, nearly $300 more than what I paid for it brand new. It felt weird being Amiga-less for the first time in 13 years. No big whoop, I thought. I can always emulate Amiga. I tried, and... Well, the Amiga emulator worked fine, but it's just not right. It didn't feel the same. And I didn't like needing to boot into Windows to run an emulated Amiga. In 2007, Lisa landed a job, and we were back on our feet. Naturally, I looked at getting another machine that could run Amiga OS 4. Unfortunately, though, it was impossible. New Amiga hardware was still not available, but there was a new motherboard in the works that was still a few months away, but I didn't want to wait. Plus, I really wanted a laptop. One downside of being an Amiga fan was there was no such thing as an Amiga laptop, unless you count the PAWS, the portable Amiga workstation. You sent your Amiga 600 or 1200 to a company called Silent PAWS, and they'd convert it to, well, um, a rather bulky laptop. And I didn't want to run Windows. I've always been the go-to tech support guy when somebody had a problem with a computer. Lately, when I'd been fixing computers, people would ask me, Do you do Mac, too? Well, I figured now was a chance for me to say, Why, yes, in fact, I do. So, after Christmas that year, I bought a MacBook. My first ever Mac, and, quite honestly, I fell in love with it. Suddenly, I no longer missed the Amiga. Well, actually, until recently. I don't know why, but lately I've been really yearning to see a workbench screen again, or play one of those classic 16-bit games. I spent some time looking at eBay, ShopGoodwill.com, Craigslist, LetGo, and Mercari, hoping to find an Amiga 600, 1200, or even a 500 for a reasonable price. (laughs) I couldn't give away my Amiga 4000 when I upgraded to the Micro Amiga 1C, and I had an even harder time trying to find a taker for my Amiga 600 when I upgraded from that. But now, forget it. You're lucky if you can find any Amiga computer available for less than its original retail price. I'm not willing to pay that much. But then I found a solution. A little device called Mr. Capital M, lowercase i, capital S, capital T, lowercase er. The Mr. is an FPGA device that runs a crap ton of different video game consoles and computer systems, including Amiga. For those of you who don't know what FPGA is, uh, well, good luck, because quite honestly, I'm still trying to figure out how to explain it or even understand it, really. For all practical purposes there, it's just really good emulation. But the FPGA nerds insist it's not emulation. But whatever the case, I recently set up my Mr. device to run the Amiga core, and I played a few games on it, and it was so nice to see that workbench screen again. But... No, my computer was not my girlfriend. Again, Amiga means friend, which I argue the Amiga computer precisely was just that. You put up with Windows at work, but after work, you can hang out with your friends and have some fun. A friend doesn't let you down. Amiga never really let me down. However, sometimes you and your friends just grow apart. And maybe one of the best things you can do for yourself is get away from a friend for a while. But then when you become reacquainted with that friend years later, the good times all come back. 
and you remember why you were friends for so long in the first place. The Amiga was such a great computer. It was a pioneer in home computer graphics and sound. By the way, one thing that Amiga had long before PC and Mac ever did, tabbed web browsing. The iBrowse web browser allowed you to open different websites and different tabs in the same window. That was the most handy thing in the world, and it's one of the reasons that of the three main web browsers for Amiga, iBrowse was my personal favorite. It wasn't the first browser ever to have tabbed browsing, but it was probably the first of the major home platforms to have it. I did experience a little bit of, I don't know, is it called culture shock in this case? But when I got the Amiga, that shock that I experienced was because I had been used to 8-bit computers such as the Commodore 64, TI-99-4A, and the Atari 8-bits. One thing 8-bit computers had in common, except maybe the Apple II series, was that they all had built-in basic programming interpreters that were actually part of the operating system. Like I said, if you wanted to load a file from a disk or a tape or something, you actually had to use at least a tiny bit of basic programming. But Amiga and other 16-bit and higher computers? Nope. There was no programming knowledge required with Amiga. Before Amiga OS 2, though, the Amiga did ship with Amiga Basic, a version of the basic programming language done up by Microsoft of all companies. But Amigans, as we call ourselves, we hated it. And as a result, Commodore never worked with Microsoft again. Starting with Amiga OS 2, Amiga Basic was no longer packaged with the operating system, but instead, the included programming language was AREX. That's capital A, capital R, lowercase EXX. That was an Amiga implementation of IBM's Rex scripting language. From what I can tell, there's no difference at all between AREX and Rex. If you brought a Rex script over from, say, a Windows NT machine and ran it on the Amiga's AREX interpreter, it would still work as expected. I never did learn AREX, although I did try a couple of times. It just wasn't my thing. A lot of Amiga programs, though, did have AREX interfaces so that you could uh, use some programming to tweak the apps a little bit. Commodore went belly up in 1994, just as there were plans for a new graphics chipset to be developed. That so-called AAA chipset was never released, although I do think a few prototypes exist. Personally, I think Commodore's big problem was a lack of advertising. At least in the United States, people heard of Amiga via word of mouth. Imagine what Commodore could have done, though. Andy Warhol famously painted a digital picture of Debbie Harry on an Amiga when it launched. Dick Van Dyke was a big Amiga fan, so there was celebrity recognition Commodore could have used. Commodore could have convinced people to buy an Amiga because of the TV shows that used Amiga, and of course because of the animation studios that just couldn't imagine not having an Amiga to work with. And multitasking! Oh my god, the seamless multitasking was a godsend! After Commodore tanked, the Amiga properties were sold and resold numerous times. I think Gateway at one point actually owned Amiga, but as with most of the other companies that owned the Amiga rights, they did nothing with Amiga. They just used it as a tax write-off. There was one company, um, Escom, I believe, that actually did produce some Amiga products for a while, mainly the Amiga 1200. 
Hyperion Entertainment currently maintains and still semi-actively develops the Amiga operating system and uh, some other Amiga software. Speaking of Amiga software, I spent a lot of time talking about my life as an Amigan, but I didn't really spend much time talking about my favorite apps on the Amiga. Recently, I heard from more than one other fellow podcaster that people like lists, so I will talk about my top five favorite Amiga games and my top five favorite non-game Amiga apps. First of all, my favorite games, number five. It's actually two different ones that I'm going to count as just one package, and that's Pinball Dreams and Pinball Fantasies by Digital Illusions. I mean, really, there's not much different between these two games other than uh, there are different boards, but, well, except that Pinball Fantasies has slightly sharper graphics and also a separate AGA version, Pinball Dreams never had an AGA version. Also, given that Pinball Dreams was my intro to the Amiga, there will always be a spot in my heart for it. Just for perspective, in terms of playing video game versions of pinball, I was used to video pinball in the Atari 2600. But man, pinball dreams and pinball fantasies, oh, so detailed, so realistic, so fast-paced with lightning-fast screen scrolling, so mind-blowing. Technically, I theoretically should also include the third game in the series, Pinball Illusions, but I only played that for the first time just a couple of days before I wrote this script and haven't really had enough experience to fully comment on it, other than to say that Pinball Illusions has a multi-ball mode. When I got that Amiga 4000, it included a copy of Slam Tilt, which I believe is also by Digital Illusions, but uh, I was never able to get that to run, so uh, I can't really comment on it, but judging from the videos I've seen on YouTube, I probably would have loved Slam Tilt Pinball as well. My next favorite game is a uh, shareware game. Uh, shareware, for those of you who don't know what that term means, generally it means it's free to try out, but if you really, really like it, you should pay to buy it. And usually, if you buy it, it unlocks some features that you couldn't get in the um, free version. But this one, number four for me, is Mega Ball by Ed Mackey. This was a uh, shareware implementation of the classic breakout formula. Well, actually, it was closer to Arkanoid because it had power-ups. Uh, and by the way, Arkanoid also had a great Amiga port. But uh, just like Arkanoid, Mega Ball had power-ups and bonuses. And it was a very well-done homebrew, especially the AGA version. The graphics were great, the sounds were awesome, and the optional musical soundtrack was a very nice background touch. My favorite thing about Mega Ball, though, if you paused the game, there was, I think, a 25% chance that you would hear a certain piece of music. It starts with a drum roll, and then you hear a voice announcing, Your game is paused. Then you hear a crowd cheering with some happy, upbeat music. This is uh, one of the very few shareware titles I paid money to register. Uh, I say very few because during uh, that portion of my Amiga years, hey, I, I was just a college student. I didn't have money. But um, my third favorite Amiga game, at least uh, thinking about it now, Desert Strike. That's a game obviously inspired by Operation Desert Storm. Remember the Persian Gulf War? You control an Apache helicopter and you're sent on missions. You have to rescue POWs, destroy enemy properties, and ultimately capture, uh, I think they called him the leader. And uh, he appears to be a hybrid of Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi. Now, I don't know how much you know about computer games, but hackers would make programs called trainers. You install a trainer onto a game and what it does is hack the code 
so that you could have infinite lives or some other cheats. There'd usually be an additional menu or an introduction screen that tells you uh, what to do to enable, say, unlimited firepower or whatever else have you. So I downloaded a Desert Strike trainer, and despite setting it to allow me unlimited hellfires, those things are powerful, and unlimited lives and unlimited fuel, I still couldn't capture the leader. He always escaped in the end. I loved Desert Strike when I played it on my brother's Sega Genesis, but he eventually got rid of the Genesis in favor of a Super NES. But uh, I was thrilled, though, and I found out that it was being made for the Amiga. Truth be told, I do like the Genesis version slightly better because on that version, you can actually choose how much inertia the Apache has, but you can't do that on the Amiga version. I was also thrilled because in one of the Amiga magazines that reviewed Desert Strike, it talked about how the next game that Electronic Arts was going to be porting to the Amiga was NHL Hockey, which is an awesome game on the Genesis. Unfortunately, though, after Desert Strike, Electronic Arts stopped supporting Amiga, so NHL Hockey never happened. And that was a common story. A lot of the big game developers out there just, at one point, dropped support for Amiga. Most of the games that were out on PCs and Macs were also out on Amiga. But these developers were claiming that there was too much software piracy going on in the Amiga world to justify supporting it. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of piracy going on, but it was nothing compared to what was going on in the PC world, so I don't know. But anyway, the number two favorite game for me, and I'm sure a lot of Amiga people agree with me on this, Lemmings by Psygnosis, I think that's how it's pronounced, P-S-Y-G-N-O-S-I-S. You cannot be an Amiga fan and not love Lemmings, it's just not possible. You control a bunch of mindless lemmings who keep walking in one direction, and you have to bless them, so to speak, with certain powers to guide them to their home base. The high-res graphics, the sound effects, the wacky arrangements of public domain music, and the increasing difficulty levels make Lemmings a classic that, as far as I'm concerned, ranks up there with Donkey Kong, Sonic the Hedgehog, and even Pong. I've heard that Lemmings 2, The Tribes, is even better, but unfortunately, I've yet to play that game, so I can't say for sure. Now, my number one favorite game title on the Amiga is another situation in which I have to pair two games at once, and that's Deluxe Pac-Man and Deluxe Galaga. Both of those are shareware titles made by Edgar Vigdal. I think that's how his name's pronounced. I think he was from Norway. He put his own spin on those arcade classics. I'm ranking these deluxe games based on two things. First of all, I probably played these games on my Amiga more than any other Amiga game. And second, because they're among the few shareware titles that I actually paid for the full versions of. Again, I was a poor college student when I started with the Amiga, so I had to save for quite a while to buy software. So I had to be very selective in what I bought. I've been a big Pac-Man fan pretty much as long as the Pac-Man franchise has existed, and I love what Edgar did with the game. Power-ups, hidden bonuses, extra challenges, just so good. Now, I was never a fan of any of the Galaxian series of arcade games, including Galaga. Quite honestly, they always bored me. But again, Edgar put in a lot of nice extras with Deluxe Galaga that made it so much fun to play. In recent years, he ported Deluxe Galaga to modern systems under the name Warblade, and for a while, I'd play it on an iPad. I believe he did the same for Deluxe Pac-Man, but it became Deluxe Pac-Mon, P-O-C-M-O-N. 
Sadly, though, neither is available anymore because Edgar died from cancer in 2015. But if I can find a source for those games, I will link them in the online bibliography. As for my favorite non-game apps, well, uh, this was a little bit harder to do because the utility apps and the productivity apps that I used, I use them almost equally as much, so it's hard to say. But just for argument's sake, let's just say that number five for me, Audio Evolution by Davey Wensler. Audio Evolution was basically a multi-track digital audio workstation for the Amiga. The Prelude sound card in my Amiga 4000 worked really well with it. And when I upgraded to the Micro Amiga 1C, Audio Evolution was useful on that too with a Sound Blaster card. It was a great piece of software. It cost a hundred bucks back in the early 2000s, but now it's available for free. And I gotta tell you, Davey Wensler was awesome at supporting that software. If you had a question for him, he would get back to you immediately. Number four in my top five non-gaming Amiga apps, the Amiga Operating System. Yeah, it, it's probably a cop-out to rank the actual operating system, but man, Amiga had a unique and easy-to-use operating system. One thing that it offered that its detractors who used a PC or a Macintosh, as we sometimes called it back then, was a RAM disk, meaning that the RAM would actually mount as if it were a drive. You could drag and drop files over in the RAM, and that was quite handy if you were just moving files around, especially when you were cleaning your hard drive, organizing your folders and stuff. It was such an intuitive operating system as well, and it seemed to merge the useful features of Unix with some of the more user-friendly features that MS-DOS had. Number three on my non-gaming Amiga apps, top five, Octomed Pro. I don't know how the uh, developer's name is pronounced, but I'm guessing it's Tejo Kanunen. Like I said earlier, I used this program all the time to make mod files, and then when I got a MIDI keyboard, Octomed was my go-to app because it had support for 64 MIDI voices. I think most other MIDI software for Amiga, including the ultra-popular Bars and Pipes, only supported up to 16. My number two favorite non-gaming Amiga app, Yam, by Marcel Beck. Yam was an acronym. It was short for Yet Another Mailer. It was an email reader, and to this day, I have never seen a better email reader than Yam. It had so many useful features that were rare back then, but pretty commonplace today. Auto-sorting into folders and subfolders. Each folder had its own signature tagged onto messages. There was color coding, seamless inline graphics displays. It was so nice. In fact, you could even set up your folders so that each could be tied to a different email address, and that was incredibly handy. The best thing about Yam, it was free. And my number one all-time favorite Amiga app and a favorite Amiga app ever, including games, even though it's not a game, Directory Opus by Innovatronics. It's not only the most useful app on the Amiga, but it's also the most useful app I've experienced on any platform. It's available on Windows too, but it's not nearly as intuitive and robust as it was on the Amiga. Directory Opus would open a screen with two window panes side by side. Each pane would display a file directory, and you could choose which directory was in which pane. It made deleting, copying, moving, and renaming files ridiculously quick and easy. You'd load one directory on the left side and highlight all the files you wanted to move, click the move button, and they'd magically appear on the right side and disappear from the left side. You could view image files of any possible type, or play audio files of any possible type with a click of a button. 
Sometimes you didn't even need to click a button. You just double-click the file. It would take care of it for you. You could quickly read text files. Not enough functionality? Well, there's good news. You could configure extra buttons to have it do whatever you wanted. Just to give you an idea, when I got my Micro Amiga 1C, I configured a directory opus button and I labeled it Food Fight. When you clicked the Food Fight button, it would run the MESS emulator and play the Atari 7800 version of Food Fight. GPSoft eventually took over the development of Directory Opus in the mid-90s and came up with a new thing called Directory Opus Magellan, which was actually a workbench replacement. It was essentially workbench with Directory Opus integrated inside it. And that thing, oh goodness gracious, that was so sweet. You'd think you were just using the standard Amiga workbench, but if you double-clicked on an empty area on the desktop, a Directory Opus window would pop up. So, so nice. Sadly, though, Magellan was programmed so that it would specifically target the custom chipset on the older Amigas so it wouldn't work on the PowerPC-based Amiga OS 4 devices like the Micro Amiga 1C I had. Really, the only thing I regretted about going Mac in 2007 instead of sticking it out for a new Amiga system is that there isn't a Mac equivalent to Directory Opus. I did try to make one, though, in Java, but I aborted that project after I found out the hard way that the Mac's implementation of Java, at least back then, didn't support the key features that I needed. People mocked me for having an Amiga as my one and only computer during most of my 13 years as an Amigan, but I don't care. I went so far as to put Amiga OS in the skills portion of my resume, I guess as a way to show how versatile I can be. Well, in February of 2013, during a time when I was unemployed, I got a call from a recruiter who found my LinkedIn profile. She told me she had a couple of clients who were looking for developers, and she thought that, judging from my LinkedIn profile, I'd be a perfect fit. Well, one of these clients, whom I'll just call Client Q, preferred candidates who were super, super senior, as she said, but I was not. But she wanted to submit me anyway, because hmm, why the heck not? The worst that'll happen is they'll pass. Well, Later that day, after I sent her my resume, the recruiter called me and said that Client Q wanted to interview me. Why? Because the dev manager was intrigued by my Amiga experience. So, I went for the interview, and afterwards, as the dev manager escorted me out of the office, I asked him why he was intrigued by my Amiga experience. Because I'm a child of the 80s, he replied. He told me he had an Amiga 500 for a long time. Well, guess what, suckers, who laughed at me for 13 years? Client Q offered me the job, and seven and a half years later, I still have that job. I mentioned before that the Concierto sound card I had would not record stereo sound in 16-bit resolution at 44.1 kilohertz. Well, now I'm going to talk about some of the things I was trying to record at that time when I learned that hard lesson. In this chapter's installment of Music for Schnooks, I'm going to talk about some music that I have yet to talk about in Autobiography of a Schnook. Sometime in the 90s, I'm going to say it was probably around 1996, I went to a record show and I purchased several albums that, by 2000, still had not been released on compact disc. In 2000, my new car had a CD player, but not a cassette player, though. So if I wanted to listen to any of these albums in my travels, and believe me, I did, I'd somehow have to put the music on CD. Thankfully, I had just gotten the Concerto sound card for my Amiga 4000. 
Unfortunately, as you've already heard, it could not record stereo in the CD standard of 16 bits at 44.1 kHz. I tried workarounds such as recording each channel separately in mono with those specs, but that was more trouble than it was worth. I tried lowering the speeds and resampling at 44.1, but that also just wasn't going to happen. So what did I do? Well, I'll tell you later. First, let me tell you about these records. I repeat, these albums were not yet out on CD, and given the specialized audience who would listen to those albums, it wasn't likely they would be out on CD anytime soon. What was so specialized about those albums? Well, before I get into that, I just need to say this. It turns out I'm not a big fan of musicals, or at least modern ones. I don't know why, there just aren't many that I care for. I found the Book of Mormon to be highly overrated. I mean, yeah, there were a couple of laugh-out-loud moments, and the message at the end was good, but... Meh. Motown the musical could have been better if there weren't some contrived moments, and it didn't end up being almost exclusively about the affair that uh, Barry Gordy had with Diana Ross. And as much as I love Carol King, I just didn't like Beautiful. The timeline was screwed up, and there were a few parts of the plot that didn't make any sense. And here's something that I'm one of few people brave enough to admit. I did not like Hamilton. I saw it on stage in Chicago a few years ago, and it annoyed me. It seemed that nothing happened for almost an hour. It was just Aaron Burr walking up to people and saying, My name is Aaron Burr, and I'm looking for Alexander Hamilton. Look, I know it's an important musical for various reasons, but man, I just couldn't get into it. For me, the definitive telling of the Alexander Hamilton story is when Lin-Manuel Miranda was on Drunk History. And don't even get me started on Andrew Lloyd Webber. And an abrupt topic change for lack of a good paragraph transition. In the late 80s, there was a commercial that ran on WCKG, the classic rock station in Chicago. The commercial was for a compilation album called Our Generation. The commercial started with the intro from the Birds rendition of Mr. Tambourine Man, while a voice announced the various artists that were on the compilation. It sounded something like this. The Birds, the Beach Boys, the Mamas and the Papas, the Guess Who. Of course, the commercial included a montage of clips from some of the songs. One in particular caught my ear. There was something strange about the harmonies of that short segment of music without the context of the rest of the song. Something ominous yet promising. Trippy lyrics in that one single line. What exactly is this Age of Aquarius thing? What does it mean? The most I could find out back then was that the song is from the musical Hair. Eventually, I heard that it was by a group called The Fifth Dimension. So, as was my habit back then when exploring music, I went to the public library. I found an album by the Fifth Dimension called Age of Aquarius. The actual name of the song I heard in that commercial was Aquarius slash Let the Sunshine In, and it had the flesh failures in parentheses. Now that was weird, because the first thing I would think of when I see the phrase Let the Sunshine In is the song that Pebbles and Bam Bam sang in that Flintstones episode when Fred was dreaming that uh, Pebbles and Bam Bam were singing sensations. Of 
course, sometime later, I learned the actual name of the Flintstones song as Open Up Your Heart and Let the Sun Shine In. But uh, back to that Fifth Dimension song. I liked that song, but nothing else on the album. The rest of the songs were just dippy at best, boring at worst. But I wanted to hear these songs in context. Sometime in 1990, A&E was showing the movie Hair. The song Aquarius sounded virtually nothing like how the Fifth Dimension did it. And Let the Sunshine In was not this joyful, happy song that the hit single made it out to be. Of course, I later found out that the movie has nothing in common with the stage show on which it's based, except for character names, songs, and an acid trip. But I really dug the music. Donna was a great rocker. Manchester was kind of corny but catchy. Hair and I Got Life were great showstoppers. The Flesh Failures, which is the actual title of Let the Sunshine In, was chilling. I needed to get the soundtrack album, so once again, I turned to the library. I found a hair album and I listened to it, but it sounded nothing like the movie. Ah, but it was the Broadway cast recording, and it had a ton more songs than I remember from the movie. That album was a bit disappointing, though, because the subtitle of Hair is the American Tribal Love Rock musical, but the cast recording sounded very little like rock. It sounded just like any other cast recording of its day. You could have told me it was the sound of music and I would have believed it. If you were to play that album for somebody who had never heard of Hair, that person would easily identify it as some kind of a Broadway cast recording. But still, something about that music just grabbed me. The melodies, the chord changes. In fact, come to think of it, the chord changes were definitely not rock music changes. The chord changes were actually closer to jazz, which actually is not really all that surprising, given that Galt McDermott, the show's composer, was a jazz musician. But I liked some of what I heard on the cast recording, and I liked some of what I heard in the movie. On top of that, I knew there was at least one other Hair album out there, the off-Broadway cast recording. Hair Broadway cast member Mary Davis, who used Lori as her first name professionally, wrote a book about her experiences in the show and called it Letting Down My Hair, and the library had it. I stumbled on it accidentally, actually, when I was putting books away. In the book, she talked about how before the initial rehearsals, she was given a copy of the Off-Broadway album for reference from when the show was at the New York Shakespeare Festival Public Theater. And I found more evidence that this album existed when I was looking through a book called Sixties by John and Gordon Javna. I believe I talked about that book in uh, one of the appendix episodes of this podcast. In that book, there was a picture of a hair cast recording, and the full title was New York Shakespeare Festival Public Theater Presents Hair, an American Tribal Love Rock Musical. The cover was different. The Broadway album had cast member Steve Curry's head in psychedelic reds and greens, but the off-Broadway cover was a picture of five Native Americans. 
Okay, so now that I have evidence that this album exists somewhere, I need to find it. By the time I learned about the Off-Broadway album, I had started working at the public library. One thing you learn really quickly is it's pretty difficult to look up the hair musical in an electronic card catalog or any other type of search engine. You'll come up with just about anything that has the word hair, and if you specify cast recording or soundtrack, you'll get hairspray in the results. So I had to just occasionally flip through the show tunes in the record collection and see if anything new came up. Well, one day it happened. There was an album called Disinherited, D-I-S-I-N-H-A-I-R-I-T-E-D. The cover was black and white, with the title spelled out in individual letters that looked almost like a ransom letter, and the I in hair was dotted with a three. Usually it's dotted with an infinity symbol, and here's a fun fact for you. If you see the I in the title hair dotted with the infinity symbol, it means that that version of the show was produced by Michael Butler. Pictured on the front cover were two Native Americans. The cover was a vertically oriented gatefold, kind of like Frampton Comes Alive, uh, Pacific Ocean Blue, Off the Wall, or Travolta Fever, as you all know, I'm sure. When you open the gatefold, you see that the two figures were sitting sideways on a commercial airliner. Well, they weren't actually on the airliner. It was photoshopped. Uh, that is a uh, lowercase p in Photoshop. Uh, this album was recorded in uh, 1969. The capital Photoshop didn't exist yet, but Photoshops did. <laughs> the track listing was on the inside of the gatefold. Long story short, Disinherited is essentially a sequel to the Broadway cast recording. It was recorded in November 1969 by the then-current Broadway cast. It consisted of songs from Hair that were not included on the original Broadway cast recording. Some of the songs were in the off-Broadway version of the show, but didn't make it to Broadway. We are Some were actually in the Broadway show, but were left off the Broadway album because there literally wasn't room, or else the Broadway album would have had to be a two-record set. Just like the angel that fell, vanished forever to hell, today have I been expelled from high school heaven. A few of the songs on Disinherited were meant to be used in hair, but never were. Other songs in the album were simply just pieces of dialogue from the show, but rewritten as songs just for that album. Mr. Burger, yes, sir. He's eaten. Thank you. We've become well acquainted. Good of course, I checked the album out. Judging from all the surface noise on it, it had been played a lot, surprisingly. Musically, it sounded a bit grittier than the Broadway cast recording, but it definitely sounded more rock and roll, and Ergo was likely closer to how the music actually sounded when it was performed on stage. But even with this new discovery, I still had to find that off-Broadway album. Now, let me explain something about how my public library worked, and it's actually pretty common among most public libraries. The Joliet Public Library was part of the Heritage Trail library system, if you searched for something in our card catalog, you may find titles that are available at other libraries in the system. You, as a patron, could borrow materials from one of the other libraries by requesting an interlibrary loan. However, 
Not all libraries in the Heritage Trail system were online on the same system that other libraries had. So there were some Heritage Trail library system libraries that were not searchable at Joliet, such as the Fountaindale libraries in Bolingbrook and Romeoville, and the College of St. Francis library. If there was something you were looking for, but it wasn't showing up on the online card catalog, you could still fill out a request form that would be sent to all the libraries in the system manually, and if anybody had that item, they'd send it over. So, knowing that, I filled out one of those interlibrary loan forms. Uh, we called them greenies because uh, they were, I think it was three carbon copy sheets and the top one was green. On the greenie, I specifically wrote that I was looking for the hair off-Broadway cast recording, but several libraries were sending over the Broadway album. So I filled out another request, but with more details, including that full title that mentions the New York Shakespeare Festival Public Theater. I still ended up with the Broadway album, even though there's no mention of the New York Shakespeare Festival Public Theater on it anywhere. One of the circulation clerks actually went so far as to write on the form that I filled out, this is not the Broadway cast recording we're asking for. But nope, we still ended up getting the Broadway cast recording sent to us. Oh, speaking of the College of St. Francis, uh, that's where I went to college. Uh, I know I've mentioned that in at least one or two prior episodes. When I was still a high school senior, the college had kind of a special orientation weekend for future students. During a break in that weekend between activities, I went to the college's library and browsed through the card catalog. By this time, I figured out that a surefire way to get titles related to the musical Hair and virtually nothing else was to do an author search of one of the authors, Jerome Ragney or James Rado. They were both unusual enough names to get some direct hits. Well, I did that and I found a particular card listing. Hair, an American tribal love rock musical. Notice the use of the indefinite article Anne as the off-Broadway cast recording used. The Broadway used the definite article The. And the date on the card? 1967. That's when the show was produced off-Broadway. The Broadway show was April 1968. And... Suddenly, I knew for sure that the card was referring to the off-Broadway cast recording. It listed the RCA Records catalog number, LOC 1143. Uh, the Broadway version was 1150. The LOC prefix, by the way, indicated that it was mono. The stereo version would have been LSO 1143. The albums weren't stored in a publicly accessible space, so I asked an AV staffer to retrieve the album for me. So she went back and very quickly retrieved it, and there it was, the exact thing that I was looking for. Wow. Now, the next thing. I wasn't yet a student, but could I still somehow check out the record? College of St. Francis is still in the Heritage Trail system, and I have a membership card at a Heritage Trail library. Unfortunately, no. But, because the library was part of Heritage Trail, I could still request it via interlibrary loan. And that's exactly what I did. I specified every detail I could and specified that this greenie was going to the College of St. Francis Library. So the circulation clerk to whom I gave the request told me, hey, we'll vouch for you if necessary. We'll make sure you finally get this thing. Well, it didn't take long. It was maybe a week that it took the album to arrive in downtown Joliet. I wasted no time photocopying the back cover. And then I dubbed the record to a cassette. And 
wow, compared to the Broadway cast recording, which itself is pretty, um, not the most amazing thing in the universe, the off-Broadway album was really primitive. Very subdued band with no brass. Got my arms, got my hands, got my fingers, got my legs, got my feet, got my toes, got my liver, I got my blood. I'm pretty sure it's essentially the same band that was on the Broadway album, but it was a much smaller band. Just drums, mainly played with brushes, organ, guitar, and an out-of-tune bass. But it was still an interesting listen. Even more interesting was the cover. It turned out there weren't five Indians on the cover at all. There were three, Sitting Bull being one of them. The two remaining figures that weren't Indians were actually hair authors Jim Rado and Jerry Ragney, dressed in tribal clothing. This is the same picture that was used for advertising posters for the Off-Broadway show. And a fun fact for you, when Michael Butler saw that poster in 1967, it particularly caught his eye. He noticed that the poster had a few of his favorite historical Native American figures, and he was very sympathetic to the plight of the American Indian. In fact, Michael Butler was at one point JFK's advisor on Native American affairs. He looked at that poster and he thought that the show was going to be about, well, Native Americans. So he went to the first preview, and instead of seeing a show about Native Americans, he saw what he felt was the strongest statement against the Vietnam War that he ever encountered. After the show, he met with Rado, Ragney, and McDermott, and he asked them to bring the show to Chicago, but they declined. Then he said, well, how about Broadway? And, well, the rest is history. But anyway, at this point, my collection of hair cast recordings now included homemade cassette copies of the off-Broadway version and Disinherited. And I also had a store-bought cassette copy of the Broadway cast recording. And the cool thing about that was... It was a newer version of the Broadway cast recording. It was still the original cast, but it had more songs than the original release had. And some of the songs that were included on the original release actually faded out early. But on this version, they did not fade out early. They went on until they ended. But having said that, though, that those other two albums were just cassette copies, that was a problem. I needed to own the actual albums, partly because for a long time I was an obsessive collector of music I was into, but also because, well, I needed an original, especially in case my tape copies went south. Now, this is where that record show comes in. It was at a motel off a of frontage road in Joliet somewhere. I'd never gone to a record show before, so I figured, you know, why the heck not? Well, it proved to be a pretty good use of my time. I walked away with a decent haul for not a lot of money, including that Withered Beatles bootleg I mentioned in Chapter 17 of this podcast. Part of the haul? Some hair cast recordings. One of those cast recordings? Finally, my own copy of the off-Broadway cast recording. Uh, it was a reissue, though, from uh, probably 1976, I think. The original pressing that I borrowed from the college library had a black label with Nipper the Dog above the spindle hole, but the version of this uh, reissue had an orange label, but no Nipper at all. I want to have the puppy on my record label. Also, 
I was glad that I photocopied the back cover of the college's copy because the reissue had a different back cover. The original release of the album had a picture of the cast with a little write-up about the show. Well, the cover on the reissue simply had a track listing superimposed over a picture of the back of somebody's head. Uh, For comparison's sake, think about the very last shot at the end of the closing credits of A Hard Day's Night. That's what it looked like. But hey, at least it was my own copy, it was an official copy, and it was in really good condition, and this time it was in stereo. I also found a copy of the London cast recording. Interestingly, this album was released in the United States, but I don't know why. I mean, we have the Broadway version. Why would we need the London version? I don't understand the logic there. Uh, And not only that, but the U.S. version had a different cover from the U.K. version, so go figure. Uh, The U.S. version, the front cover had kind of a Peter Max-style design, but the cover on the U.K. release is basically a variation on the cover of the Broadway album. And also, the... um, UK version of the London cast recording was on Polydor Records, but the US version was on Atco Records. Uh, I, I, I didn't delve into the history as to why that is. I might have to do that someday. I'll have to check that out. But anyway, I thought before that some of the singing on the Broadway cast album is pretty bad. Yikes. Um, I, well, the London cast recording is much more, all right i don't want to be a mean guy here so uh may, i don't know maybe it's not so much that the singing on the original london cast album is bad per se but at the very least it's very loud At another dealer table, I found yet another international hair cast recording, Version Originale Française, the Paris cast album from 1969. This, I know for sure, was not a pressing made in the United States because the liners were entirely in French. In fact, the dealer was almost trying to discourage me from buying it. He said, uh, just want you to know that album is entirely French. There isn't a word of English on it. I said, no problem. I'm building up my hair collection. And I took three years of French in high school, so I can probably decipher at least some of this. And while I was at it, I pointed at the French song titles and I told them what the English song titles were. Uh, there was J'ai pas de, that's ain't got no. Où vais j'allais, that's where do I go. Au grand dieu du pouvoir, that's O great god of power. I don't know why, but that song seldom makes it to the various cast recordings. It's in every production, but for some reason, they just don't include it on the cast recordings. But still, even if I weren't okay with the French, the dealer was only asking four bucks for it, and it was in really good shape. Performance-wise, it was pretty solid, although Julien Clerc who played the main character Claude in that production, sounded like a sheep. And there was a little bit of cheesiness in the instrumentation that's almost stereotypical of France, almost cartoonish. But otherwise, it's a pretty solid listen. And for some strange reason, Dead End is actually 100% in American English, so the dealer wasn't entirely correct about how there isn't a word of English on the album. It's a daddy. Daddy, yeah. I tell you it's a daddy. daddy. Interestingly, by the way, on the Tokyo cast recording, which I acquired several years later, 
Dead End also is sung in American English, as is HUD's verse of Ain't Got No. Ain't got no mother, ain't got no culture, ain't got no friends, ain't got no schooling, ain't got no shine, ain't got no underwear, ain't got no soap, ain't got no A-train, ain't got no man. Moving on to another table, I found yet another hair cast recording, and a particularly unusual one at that. It was on RCA Records, and it was called Divine Hair Mass in F. In looking at the gatefold cover, I concluded it was one of those oddball albums done by the Broadway cast, perhaps another sequel to the Broadway album as was Disinherited. Just as with the other records I picked up, the cover and vinyl were in really good condition, and it was cheap, only six bucks, so no sense not buying it. Now, here's the deal. Every year, during its original Broadway run, the cast of Hair would perform a concert, I believe usually in Central Park, to celebrate the show's anniversary. But in 1971, they did something different. They held a mass in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Now, the music for the mass proper was the debut of a modern jazz mass that had just been composed by Galt McDermott. Remember, he's the composer of the musical Hair. The hymns that were in this mass, songs from the show Hair. Then peace will guide the planets, and love will see the stars. Also performing with the cast were various choirs from the cathedral. Let me tell you, this album is truly a great listening experience in terms of hair. The performances obviously were recorded live, and everybody was just on fire. My particular favorite moment is the performance of Where Do I Go? That's normally the first act closer with the famous nude scene. Well, um, you obviously can't see nudity on a sound recording, but I'm gonna guess that everybody kept their clothes on for this particular occasion. But wow, what a performance, led by Robin McNamara. Robin would frequently play Claude after Jim Rado left the show. In the previous year, he had a hit with a song Lay a Little Lovin' on Me, with the cast of Hair actually singing backup on it. Hey, lay a little lovin' on me. Lay a little lovin' on me. Honey, they're gonna die to come upon it, so lay a little lovin' on me. Speaking of Jim Rado, he makes a guest appearance on the album singing 1,000-Year-Old Man, a song that was on the Disinherited album, but as far as I'm aware, was never actually used in the show. The war was over several hours ago, and the future is speeding on, aluminum people. One of the readings done in the Mass, by the way, was delivered by Richard Ragney, Catholic priest and brother of hair author Jerome Ragney. 
I want you to be happy, always happy in the Lord. I repeat, what I want is your happiness. From listening to the music on the album, it was truly a joyous experience. Robin McNamara confirms that it was, as does Michael Butler. In fact, because of this album, I actually got to have lunch with Michael Butler on a couple of occasions. Uh, That's a story for another episode, though. I know I purchased more albums that day besides that Beatles bootleg and the Haircast recordings, but I don't remember which other albums I bought for sure. Over the next few years, I acquired more cast recordings. Fresh Hair, which is basically the London equivalent of Disinherited. The German cast recording featuring Donna Summer using her maiden name Donna Gaines. That's right, she was in the German cast. Uh, She was in the New York cast for a while, but uh, they sent her over to Germany to open the show there, and she took a crash course in German. The Israeli cast recording. An original pressing of the off-Broadway cast album from 1967. And a quadraphonic mix of the Broadway album, plus several others on CD. I went to eBay to get disinherited on both vinyl and reel-to-reel. And I got the Tokyo cast recording by way of an ad in Goldmine. And by the way, those folks in Japan, they freaking rocked like nobody's business. But man, I really wanted to be able to hear those obscure vinyl cast recordings on CD. Now remember, when I first tried to put those albums on CD, I learned my sound card wasn't up to the task. Just by coincidence, right when I discovered that, I happened to mention on one of the Beach Boys news groups on Usenet that I owned a copy of The Many Moods of Murray Wilson. Uh, That's an album of instrumental schmaltz music recorded by the Wilson Brothers' infamous abusive father. Somebody emailed me privately and said, Could I borrow that album? I want to put it on CD and give it a nice proper mastering, clean it up, and make it look all professional. I'll give you a copy of that CD in return, along with the original album and everything. I thought about it and I figured, hmm. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll lend this album to you if you also do the same thing with my hair cast recordings. And he said, deal. So I sent the Murray Wilson album and the hair cast recordings to him. I think he lived in Massachusetts. He got back to me, he said they all arrived safely. The only thing is I have to remove the shrink wrap on the Murray Wilson album. I said, no problem, go right ahead. About a month or two later, a package arrived for me, and it had all my albums. The Murray Wilson album, the Haircast recordings, the special Murray Wilson CD he made for my copy of the album, and a jewel case holding six CDs that contained all my cast recordings. Now, he didn't do the denoising and de-clicking that he did with the Murray Wilson CD on the Haircast recordings, but that was okay. They still sounded really good. But now that I had those hair albums on CD, I no longer had, I guess, digital alopecia, if you can follow me. In the years since, most of these cast recordings were reissued on CD. At one point, I imagined a special RCA box set that would contain all the hair cast recordings that RCA ever released. 
The off-Broadway cast from 67, the Broadway cast from 68, the disinherited album from 69, the Tokyo cast recording, Divine Hair Mass in F, and the 1979 movie soundtrack, and of course all would have unreleased songs or alternate versions as bonus tracks. Alas, that dream didn't come true. But in 2003, the Broadway cast recording was reissued as a double CD. The other CD in the package had the off-Broadway cast recording. Much to my pleasant surprise, the off-Broadway cast recording included several unreleased songs. Now, somebody who had direct experience in hair had told me that if there was a song recorded for the off-Broadway cast recording, it was already included on the album in 1967, and there wasn't anything left in the vaults. Well, of course, I am happy to find out that was not true at all. Disinherited was reissued as both a download and a CD on a specialty label called Archive Music. That's A-R-K-I-V-M-U-S-I-C, one word. In my opinion, though, Archive Music didn't do a good job. The sound on it isn't all that great. And to be quite honest, I would not be surprised if I were to find out that they actually used my own personal vinyl copy of Disinherited as the master. They didn't include the gatefold picture, so you didn't have the... Uh, two Indians sitting on a jetliner, and the picture that was on the center fold of the gatefold wasn't included. It was just not done very well at all. The London cast album is out on CD, but it's not quite the same. It's a bit odd in that uh, that CD has some songs from the original London cast recording and some songs from the Fresh Hair album to try to come up with one single CD that was a little bit more complete than whatever was before. But still, though, it's missing some tracks from the original London cast recording, and it's missing some tracks from Fresh Hair. But best of all, Divine Hair Mass in F is available on CD, and they did a really good job with it. I was so happy to hear that. It's not just that my interest, nay, obsession, with the show Hair fattened up my record collection, but also because of said obsession, I've seen several productions, some great, some okay, some... Meh. I learned quite a lot about American pop culture and history. And best of all, I've made some great friendships because of hair and have plenty of stories to tell that you'll likely hear in a future episode. I think by now that I've pretty much reached... um. I guess the law of diminishing returns in terms of cast recordings of hair. I think I have pretty much everything that was ever out there. International versions, alternate cast recordings, things like that. I'm not looking for, say, the Quincy Jones tribute album. I know he did one. I know other artists did uh, all hair albums. I'm just looking specifically cast recordings movie soundtrack. The only thing I haven't found is uh, I think the Tokyo cast recording was eventually put out on CD but I haven't been able to find a copy of that. I'm still listening to the vinyl version. And by the way, a lot of people, for some reason, I think these are people who never actually saw the show, sometimes refer to hair as a rock opera, which it's not. It's not. It's a musical. It's a play with songs in it. And I think the reason they call it a rock opera is because there's so much music in it. There are a lot of songs in that show. If you trace the evolution of hair... In 1967, it only had a handful of songs, but by the time, say, 1970 happened, 
I'd say the number of songs in Hair at least doubled. And in fact, a lot of times if you see a production of Hair these days, several songs are actually left out because, well, the show is long. It's a long show. And it turns out, so was Autobiography of a Schnook this time. This was a long episode. So... Thank you for bearing with me if you're still listening to this episode. And a few things I just want to say here is that, uh, well, music and sounds that I used in this episode are the properties of their individual copyright holders, and they are used for purposes of commentary and or review. Well, in the case of the opening and closing theme and the between segment transitions, they're used for um, starting and ending the episode. No infringement is intended And by the way, you can reach me electronically in various ways, such as email at autobio at schnookpodcast.com, Twitter and Instagram at schnookpodcast, and there are autobiography of a schnook pages at both Facebook and MeWe. Feel free to reach out to me with comments about the podcast, suggestions for future episodes, questions about future or past episodes, or even if you think you have a story about being an everyday schnook that people would like to hear. Thanks to uh, Jonathan for help stirring up some Amiga memories, and thanks to Nat Gertler for his quick response when I had a couple of Peanuts questions for him. And of course, thanks to Lisa for her undying moral and immoral support. And as always, I remind you that the good goes around, and I ask you to help it go around with harmony, understanding, sympathy, and trust. All the best, my friends. I called 10x and asked for the 45. No, no, it wasn't 45. It was only 40. Good golly. Let's not get crazy here. He arranged to... He somehow arranged to borrow a huge projex... To borrow a huge projection... You can't say too many... In a row.